Hello again, friends, and welcome back for another edition of the 605 Super Podcast. I'm the great Brian Last, and we're starting off a little differently today because it's a little bit of a Frankenstein episode. It's the Lost episode. It's taken me forever to edit it because a few things really pissed me off, and now I'm kind of putting it together in a weird mishmash kind of way, and here we are to introduce it, and I'm joined by Mr. Jim Cornette. Jim, what do you have to say about all this? Is it mishmash or mismatched or a mismatched mismash? It's really whatever you want it to be. Well, what the fuck am I doing here then? I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand why I'm here or what I'm talking about. I don't really have any reason to have you here other than to tell everyone <laughs> that that's what's going on. But hey, a couple quick hot takes for you. Masa Saito just passed away. Can you think of many Japanese wrestlers who did better to adapt to America and specifically Southern wrestling as Masa Saito did? No. Uh, and, and, you know, and I never got to meet him. I was never in the same place at the same time. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. But, but no, I mean, he had some incredible runs in some major territories. And as far as level of, of star, you, you know, guys like Tanaka and Fuji uh, were mainstream stars in the, in the seventies, but, but they really, I, I don't want to say they really weren't Japanese, but you know what I'm saying for a, a guy to actually come from Japan and stay here for that long. And then go back and become a major star again in Japan. Um, he's one of the only ones that reached that level that I can think of Saito in the last, you know, since Baba. Yeah, so, well, there's the news on Masa Saito. And, uh, <laughs> another hot take I want to ask you about. It. I just got an old classic uh, Japanese wrestling magazine. It had some really cool photos that you took of Terry Funk versus Jerry Lawler, where Terry Funk has a mustache. And even though they're black and white, you could tell just how bloody these photos are. It looks really cool. What can you tell me about that? Um, actually, I don't know which match it was because that was a cool period of time, March, April, May of 81. They brought Terry in, of course, uh, to, to do an angle with, uh, with Lawler in the Memphis territory. And of course that March 23rd, 1981 match in Memphis was the five-star match that broke the scale folks started the whole thing, but they had, uh, 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 they did a program. They had returns, not only in Memphis, but also in Louisville and in Evansville and Lexington, and and I was traveling back and forth to both ends of the territory most of the time because I wanted to see as many Lawler and Funk matches as I could possibly see. It was the greatest thing at that time that me, Bolin, Weasel Dooley, any of our friends had ever seen. And good Lord, they bled all over the place. Uh, and also, it was a great chance for me to really expand my work in the Japanese magazines because Terry was gold there, Right. So when you can send in these pictures of Terry Funk bleeding and fighting with all with Lawler and all this stuff going on, they were using uh, they used a lot of stuff, probably more of my stuff uh, during that period than they did any other time I was a photographer. So I mean they had some great matches. Whether it was the the bloody one in Memphis in March, or or I remember they had a cage match in Louisville that was just insane. And of course the cage in Louisville was chicken wire. And they'd roll the chicken wire around the, the posts after the guys got in. And the first thing Terry did was grab Lawler and throw him into the wire. And it was, it, you know, it, you were heavy enough. It just tore the whole cage down. And then Lawler, <laughs> Terry rolls fung, uh, Lawler up in the wire and starts stomping on him. And it was, it was, fun. it was a different kind of cage match. But, uh, but yeah, they, those matches were insane. And Terry was, was really on his game and wanting to, to prove something there because he had never worked the Memphis territory before except coming in a, a couple times to Memphis as champion in, in his whole career. He had never been, and boy, he made a fucking splash. 
the photos I saw, he had a mustache. That was the big thing that was sticking out in those photos. Oh, okay. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, that period of time, yeah, I think for the most part of it, he had a mustache. Uh, I didn't even – because he was changing his look quite a bit yeah. during those days. Um, and when he'd, go, when he'd go to Japan, generally he'd be clean-shaven because he was baby-faced and he'd look all smiling. And then you'd see him and he'd have the wet hair. He'd have beads in it or something or a mustache <laughs> or a goatee. And, you know, and Dusty is an egg-sucking dog T-shirt on. So he was uh, – Terry was always changing. Well, with that, we have really nowhere else to go. So let's now get to whatever this episode will be. Let's now go to another uh, introduction to the yes, show. Yes, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, you have been you have been bait, baited and switched here. You completely blind have stumbled into this show without knowing what you were going to hear. But I'm sure it will be entertaining content as it always is. Let's now go to the last episode. Excuse me, the last episode, the lost episode. episode yeah, but, well, it could be both. It could. You never know. This could be the lost one and the last one. Here's episode 88 of the Super Podcast. again friends and you are my friends and welcome to another edition of 605 the super podcast the only podcast on turner time the mothership the best wrestling podcast on the planet the only wrestling podcast that matters the most influential wrestling podcast call somebody i am your host the great brian last it's me but you already knew that What are you trying to prove? And I'm very happy today to welcome back to the co-host chair a man who has become so popular on this show, a man who's become a big part of this show, who's brought so much in terms of great conversation and humor. Very happy to have him back. Howard Baum. Howard, welcome back to the show. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, You see, I was wondering which one of the expressions you've used to begin your (laughs) appearances each time you would use this time, and you went with that. I'm not very original. But here we are, Brian and Howard, two good old Southern boys just discussing professional wrestling. <laughs> and hey, everybody out there in the 605 universe, personal hello from me to you. Well, here you are. The last time you were on the show was for that train wreck of a segment, the Cauliflower Alley Roundtable, otherwise known as the Lights Out segment on episode 87. Here you are again, and I have to, I guess, just ask, because it was such an overwhelming experience, you and Kurt and Jace on the line at the same time, were there any stories that you left out? Was there anything you didn't get to talk about? Well, uh, I want to give a shout out to my friend Dale Spears, of course, who I hung out with a lot, and my oh, buddy guy. Sean I Orr. Dale. I know Dale. And exactly Sean, right. Know, and Sean, I've uh, been in communication with two, two good guys. Yeah. Yeah, and he lives down here. We're gonna get together, and he's a humongous uh, Zeppelin man, just like myself. So that's a win-win. Um, as far as previous stories, the only two that I think we really left out is beside the time that I sat next to Jim White in Tampa in 1996. I looked over I looked over at his uh name tag and I go, Are you the Jerry Lawler Jim White? He goes, Yeah, we created the monster <laughs> And um and I'm like, Oh, this is so cool. I'm next to an old fashioned Memphis guy and from that point on I spoke to him for three hours and I didn't understand a fucking thing the guy said the entire time. <laughs> what do you mean? He's like, Buddy Wayne, the Roosevelt Hotel. Like I didn't understand. I gleaned like one or two stories out of it. 
One of them is one of the ones Brennan Martin talks about in his book, Teeny, which is where Lawler used to go up to the top of the building in um, wherever the office was located, in the Goulas office. And he used to throw, he used to always ask for a special room, and he would throw water balloons down on people when they came in, like old ladies and people passing on the street. So one day he decides to do it to um, Bearcat Wright. Jim White's telling me the story, so I'll pick it up in his voice. And he's like, the old Bearcat going in the building, and Jerry Lawler up there. I don't even think I can sustain that voice, but Jerry Lawler throws a <laughs> water balloon at him, soaks him, perfect spot. Bearcat Wright grabs a gun, runs up to the apartment building, <laughs> tries to find whoever did it. Lawler, like, snuck out a back entrance or he hid in a closet or something. And um, I forget how that thing was resolved, but Jim White told me that. Like, <laughs> he, was, he was always doing that kind of stuff. He goes, yeah, we created the monster. Interesting guy, too, from what I remember, and, and I hope I'm right here, and I think I am, because I talked to Jim Cornette about it not too long ago. Jim White, you know, you see a picture of him, and he looks like he looks like what his name says. He looks like the whitest guy you can imagine. <laughs> he doesn't really right. exude charisma when you see photos of him. He just looks like right. a, a white guy in the South. He was actually married to an African-American woman way mm. back, like, you know, then, like in the early 70s. And it's pretty right. remarkable. And he had to deal with a lot of prejudice because he was married to an African-American woman. And uh, I'll see what I could do about finding out more information about that. It was a topic I was fascinated about and I never went back to. And I'm going to I'm gonna look into that, talk to Jim and see what I can find out. But interesting guy. And uh, obviously, he was a little more coherent, I guess, when he told you about Bearcat right in the gun. Than barely, barely. <laughs> coherent would be pushing it. But and I was dying to understand it, too. It's so frustrating. It's like those dreams you have. And the same thing happens when you talk to Terry Funk in person, because he talks so low. And the lower he talks, you're dying to hear every syllable Terry Funk has to say. And it's like one of those dreams where you're running through mud or you're like screaming, but you can't be heard. And Terry Funk is like three feet away, but there's other noise or something. And he's going, and then I told him, I said, <laughs> so you're like, I'm like, oh, I'm sure he's saying such great stuff and I can't get any of it. Did you ever hear this, the expression? That Terry talks like Dory wrestles. Ah, exactly. That's so true. Yeah, yeah I heard I that. That used to be said, yeah. That's so funny. The worst example of that of all time was of wishing you could hear what somebody was saying was um, at the 98 NWA 50th at the uh, CAC thing. You know, you were there. I was there. Um, I did right. Videos. Yeah, yeah. So everybody was there, and we hung out with Gordon both nights, like four hours in a row. Me, my buddy John Mastandrea, Lion Ricky, and I was the furthest away from Gordon. We were at a four top, and we had two four-hour drinking marathons back to back. And uh, I was a younger man at the time, and I could barely keep up. And Gordon had lost his voice by this time. So now you have Gordon solely cornered, and he's answering every question I couldn't hear a damn thing the entire night. I gleaned about two stories once again, one about Steve Kern wrecking Eddie Graham's toy boat. And um, <laughs> I don't even know if I remember another one. It was so painful because my other friends were like laughing and hearing him and stuff. And I'm like, what, what? I'm just like trying to strain to hear it. It's an interesting move. You know, it's actually something I read years and years ago that Jim Morrison did because he copied it from Brian Jones. Brian Jones made an appearance at a school Jim Morrison was going to before the doors started in California. So, you know, some university, all of a sudden, there's Brian Jones from the Stones when he's at the height of his pop stardom, and he whispered everything. So everyone had to be quiet and listen in and hear what he had to say. And there's a picture of him there, and Jim Morrison's, like, right near him. 
And they said that Jim Morrison picked up on that. And that's why a lot of the interviews he did, a lot of the times when he was around, he would kind of whisper and mumble things intentionally. Uh. To get people to want to lean in and hear what he had to say. So maybe Gordon was doing the Brian Jones, Jim Morrison trick. You know, that's the that's the big Malenko trick. Don't come on and yell. Just speak soft-spoken, and they're going to want to hear what you're saying. That was his big trick. I think Jake, too. I mean, because, you know, if you think about it, Jake did all yeah. the promos, but it was never like, I'm going to fuck you up. It was always like, you don't know right. what I could do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and how great is it that he um, that he actually played comfortably numb on his uh... – he really lived the gimmick when he when Jerry Gray was talking about how he played. He called him up and he's like comfortably <laughs> numb is on his answering machine. Let me tell you, I'll get you in there. I'll get you to loan me money and I'll disappear. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Yeah, terrible. 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 What else? You said you had another cauliflower alley story. You said you may have more than one. Um. Well, yeah. How about the time Ken Patera? <laughs> not racist, not based, not racist barista Ken Patera, no, no, well, officially, but Ken Patera and I it's pissed off. Frankie barista Ken Patera. We're not going to go with the racism angle. Oh, really? Forward. Yeah, oh, wow. That's no, that's no fun. Some things may come out of it, but I think we're just going to uh, focus on <laughs> Ken Tanker's right. nature. Yeah. So um, we were in the nostalgia room and everybody was there. Just at this time, it was like uh, Terry Funk's wife, Mad Dog Vashon, Superstar Graham was in the room. It was literally a who's who, as opposed to what it has become, which is a who's that. This is when it was still a who's who. (laughs) And um, so I'm talking to Ken Patera, and um, he just did a uh, shoot interview with somebody. I don't remember who he did it with, but he kept calling the guy a cocksucker all throughout the interview. Yeah, Gabe Sapolsky. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember who the shoot interview was with, and he's like, ah, you cocksucker. The funny thing about Ken Patera is there's certain people I've known in my life that are are recalcitrant and belligerent, but for some reason I don't take it seriously. I just think they're a character like Louis De Palma or Don Rickles, like, oh, this guy's talking all salty in front of me. I think it's hilarious. So I've had like girlfriends, moms who are like that, like they try to be, they try to be um, intimidating, but it's just funny to me. It's like, I know they're not going to beat me up or they can't beat me up under the circumstances wherever we happen to be. So I just laugh at it. And Ken Patera is one of those people because you can't believe he's serious. The things, the things that come out of his mouth and he just says it's a matter of factly, like you guys say, which is what makes him such a classic. So, um, you know, he's unrepentant and he's unrepentant. We're talking. He was talking about some early Ric Flair stories about, I think one of them involved an African-American midget. I know this sounds like one of my bits, but it's the God's honest (laughs) truth. It was like some kind of wild Ric Flair story where he put um, ketchup on his wiener. And I'm not talking about Oscar Mayer. And he was like parading around. And that was one of his gimmicks. And just one of the wild stories he was telling. And I go, you know, I happen to see that shoot interview you just did. And you kept calling that guy a cocksucker. And it turns out in real life, he actually is a cocksucker. And he goes, oh, really? Well, fuck that cocksucker. So right next to us, uh, Central States stalwart Percival A. Friend happens to overhear (laughs) this classy conversation that we're having. And he was with some woman who was like the, you know, she's obviously been around wrestling if she's at the CAC. And he goes, and he doesn't say anything to Patera, and he goes to me, gentlemen, there are ladies present. And I walked in front of him, and I put my knuckles on his table, and I go, you do realize this is a wrestling convention? 
You remember professional wrestling? You remember what happens in actual locker rooms and bars of professional wrestling? Percival A. Friend, ladies and gentlemen. Star of many territories, including Central States and Central oh, States. Oh, come on. Don't period. kill Percival A. Friend. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I have a message. <laughs> I've heard a lot about you assholes over there at the 605 Podcast. You're a bunch of cocksuckers. You're a bunch of just motherfuckers. Let's put it. Let's get right right to the point. I'm sick and tired of you guys. If I ever hear you say one more bad thing about Ken Patera, the world's strongest wrestler, I'll be looking for you. I believe him. <laughs> I think he's dead serious. I know. Well, luckily I'm well fortified, so I don't really have to worry. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I certainly think a cinder block may end up in my living room at some point. But uh, oh, could you only imagine? Can you imagine those guys at full strength, like the guys that are older now, and we can laugh at them because they can't physically kill us? But can you imagine them at full strength? You know, like boulder throwing Ken Patera. That can you imagine him in Ganya school? Ric Flair before he has the blonde hair, he's just a chubby guy who likes to run around in the nude and chase women around. Ken Patera who at that point is huge he's just out of the olympics and he also just casually says whatever the fuck he wants and i'm sure he was doing it back then in the early 70s it must have been a party all the time <laughs> can you even imagine that should oh my be a god those, that should be a buddy film those west coast guys i mean those uh midwest guys those you know minneapolis guys they're like their own culture up there yeah I guess. <laughs> I know, couldn't imagine. You know other I mean, Minneapolis guys that are that are pretty, well. I guess you know. Actually, now that I think about it, well, I mean, you got your Rude and yeah. your Hawk, and uh, you know those guys. It just seems like the rite of passage up there is you're a bouncer, and then you train with Eddie Sharky or Vern, and then you kick everyone's ass for the next thirty years. Were you ever around Tom Zink? Briefly, yeah, in a in a in the bar one night. Cool guy. Anything to say? Oh, he was trying to pick up a girl. He seemed nice enough. Seemed cool enough. I really didn't have any um didn't have any interaction with him. Who did you see the most often try to pick up a girl? Not necessarily pick up a girl, but of all the times you were in bars around wrestling shows, who tried to pick up the most amount of girls? Well, um not counting photographers. Well, I mean, nobody I mean, everybody was trying to pick up girls, so it wasn't like intention. It was just like it was really pecking order and like depending on the bar and the part of the country, like, you know, the guys would be all clumped together in their pecking order. Like you would have your four horsemen in one area and you'd have Dusty and his crew in another area and different guys would be paired off. Like I remember one time it was um, after some pay-per-view, I think maybe in Jacksonville in 93-ish and Harley Race and, and Big Van Vader were at the bar. And my big trick is, because I know I'm not going to glean anything if I go, hey, you know, introduce myself. They don't care. So my thing is to, to just eavesdrop and see what these guys are really like. You, that's where you're going to get the real story. So it was a classic line that my friends have been repeating to each other for years. And Vader and Race are at the bar. And it's another example of somebody that is so belligerent you can't believe they're serious. And Harley Race goes, where's our scotch and water? <laughs> it didn't, it doesn't, um, I mean, it's not much of a story, but it stuck with me for 30 years because just to see Harley Race pissed off with Vader because they had a look on their face to begin with, you know, like it was taken too long as it was. And there they are at the bar. And he's like, where's my scotch and water as Harley Race, you know? <laughs> Sounds like Moolah. 
<laughs> yelling at uh, one of her minions. Hey, were you, were you, one of her servants. Were, were you ever around Haku in a bar? I actually mocked him as a child when he was Prince Tonga, and he gave me a death stare. And somewhere in my twelve-year-old body, I knew, like, get the fuck out of there. What did and the that's really the only? Well, I I think I might have got because he was Prince Tonga, and I usually didn't do this, but I don't know what. Uh, compelled me. I go, hey, Princey, Princey. And he looked at me like that was not going to work. And I just got a feeling like on a, um, a primordial level, you know, like, okay, you shouldn't have done that. But I, the funny thing is I never did that to anyone else before or since. I always liked the heel. I was always back there taking photos. It just, I don't know. I just decided to mock him like a mark of, of all people. So that would have worked out great. Yeah, you're lucky he didn't make he was, it bow to the king. Wait, 82. He was there, right? He was there in 82 when Dory was booked? Exactly. Yeah, he was shooting with some. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, this was this was just before (laughs) this was just before I was shooting ringside. But then while he was still there, I got promoted to ringside. So absolutely. But I, you know, I'm sure he forgot it. Maybe it was the kind of thing. Maybe he even heard it wrong because I was like not that close to him. You know, maybe he just took umbrage at my general tone. But I think he quickly forgot about it. Or I wouldn't be here, obviously. Or you better get well fortified. One of the other. Uh, (laughs) He is in Florida. He's not that far away from you. Yeah, yeah. He's like selling cars in Orlando. He's apparently the happiest, nicest guy ever. That's the thing about those island guys, the Samoans. Like, I've been around all the Samoan guys. Samu, Fatu, Yokozuna, um, Tonga Kid was really a friend of mine. Well, not a friend, but, you know, I was over with him. We had some adventures. And, um, yeah, the Samoan guys are all really nice and happy-go-lucky, but they would rip your head off. Just, like, their their mentality is like that, you know, we all stick together and we watch out for our friends. And they would, they would just as soon, like, you know, destroy you than put up with you. But they're cool. But they're all cool. They're really nice guys. Well, speaking of nice guys, let's get going with the top ten. And of course, All right. the top 10 is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records. You can go to ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com, enter the promo code 605 at checkout, and save 20% on any and all purchases. R-A-M-S-E-U-R, ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com. Uh, I have to say, the reaction from the last two weeks of plugging the Ruin Brothers has been pretty overwhelming. I don't think I've ever heard from so many people telling me they got turned on to a band and to music from the show, and I'm thrilled by it because I actually really love the band. I think they're great. I want to mention this week they continue to be everywhere, not just on the Super Podcast, but in promotion of their debut album, All My Shades of Blue, and boy, that song is stuck in my head. The brothers were on WNYC Soundcheck Podcast. It's available at newsounds.org with a really great live performance. Check that out. Once again, newsounds.org for the Ruin Brothers on NYC Soundcheck. And of course, stay tuned for tour dates. They are on the road and they're going to be around for a while. So you'll hear more about them. And Dolph Ramsor actually signed another band recently. Boy, two new bands he signed. Both are just home runs in my eyes. I played them a while back when he just signed them. Well, now. Now they're actually doing something. The National Reserve are touring now in support of their debut album, Motel LaGrange. You can catch them at the Exponential Music Festival, Floyd Fest, and many more shows. We'll have more information about those dates in the coming weeks. But another band I encourage you to check out, 
the National Reserve. Between them and the Ruin Brothers, Dolph is really signing some bands that I would sign if I was operating Arcadian Vanguard Records right now. So once again, ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, the mid-Atlantic wrestling of the music industry. And with that, let's get going with this week's top 10. Howard, at number 10 this week, Hot Bruno. Y900 Hot Bruno. I'll tell you. Howard, you weren't on the uh, the Bruno San Martino special we did. you have any Bruno thoughts? I haven't really talked to you about this at all, but I know originally you do come from the Northeast, so what are your thoughts about uh, Bruno San Martino? Yeah, I definitely uh, have a foot in each camp because I kind of got a flavor of what it was like to be a Jersey guy and a uh, Florida native since 1974, not to age myself. But when it comes to Bruno, it's a really funny thing because I left in 1974, and I was not a wrestling fan up to that point, but the minute I got to Florida, I discovered wrestling. So as a New Jerseyan, Bruno was never on my radar. But immediately I started buying the magazines, and now you're in the mid-70s, and I'm asking my dad about all these different guys. I'm like, who are the Violent Brothers? He's like, that's the Valiant Brothers. <laughs> and he like he filled in all the gaps because he saw half the guys that were in the magazines. Because one of my favorites were the like um, sports review, where it was like the photo things of like the photo highlights of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and it's yeah. like all the the craziest photos. And I think that's what really made me want to become a photographer because they took all their greatest shots and put them into these you know like special magazines. So of course during this time, Bruno's on every magazine cover. And even though I'm a Florida guy and we had Dusty and all that, and that was really wrestling to us. But as you know, in those days, any wrestling that was not in your backyard was really exotic to you. So the Olympic auditorium covers, you're like, oh, my God, what's going on out there? The Mid-Atlantic stuff, oh, my God, Ric Flair. And then, of course, the mid-'70s, it was Bruno taking on Arion, Stasiak, you name it. And then, of course, the Superstar Graham feud, like – I actually, Superstar Graham was like my all-time favorite back then. We interviewed Bruno on a radio show we did in the 90s, and I said, what was your favorite feud? Because to me, I love Superstar Graham. That was like gold to me. And he's like, oh, Superstar Graham was okay. That was the worst Bruno ever. You can strike that from the record, 605ers. Yeah, he's like, oh, Superstar Graham was okay. He's like, oh, Superstar Graham was okay. I told you my Bruno impression is really ethereal. It's either there or not. <laughs> um, but the thing is, he's like, I prefer working with a Hans Schmidt. He, I know he put Hans Schmidt over and Kowalski. That, those are the two guys that he put over the most. And here's the ironic and funny part about it is because – Um, Well, there's two things. So finally now I get to return to New Jersey, and it was the year they had the blackout. I think it was 1977. So I'm up late, and I'm still a kid, like 10 or 11, and I remember I was being babysat at my aunt's house in New Jersey in Short Hills. And uh, let me know if I'm not getting specific enough for you. And uh, it's getting closer to midnight, which means two things. One, Creature Feature, and two, WOR Wrestling at midnight. So I'm psyched. Like, this is it. Now I'm finally going to see all this WWF wrestling I've been hearing about through the magazines. And I'm sitting through the worst wrestling show of all time, 1977, you know. And I remember Nikolai Volkov was there. And then I remember Bruno was feuding with Baron Von Raschke. So they had, like, Blassie and Von Raschke do the interview and everything. You know what was also funny? 
yet another digression is how they would interview the opponents right next to each other. Like Nikolai Volkov would be doing the big interview with Blassie or Albano, and then it'd be, and then Vince is like, and right here is his opponent, Bruno Serratino. They'd be like three feet away from each other, and they had to sit there and listen to the one guy's promo all about him, and then the other guys would leave, and the other guy would come in. Do you find that odd? Like they're both standing there. He's like, he's like, Bruno, it's gonna be the end of you. And then Bruno's right there. And then, and then Vince is like, and Bruno, why don't you come in now? And then, <laughs> and then Volkov and, and Blassie just leave. So anyway, now I'm psyched. This is like the ultimate moment for me. I'm finally gonna see Bruno in action. And it, it was some kind of angle with Baron von Raschke, and um, he goes. Uh, I want to tell you people, I'm so disappointed in the conduct. I'm like, oh my God, he sucks. What is this? I thought he was terrible after all that. And, um, but the thing is, you got to be from there and get it to appreciate what he is. Because Jerry, when Jerry Lawler left his territory, he was no big deal either. He didn't take his charisma with him either when he left the area. Because I saw him in Memphis and I saw him in Florida in the same year. And just, they don't bring their aura with them. And me being such a Florida guy, I was not impressed with Bruno. So as a favorite, as a worker, as an icon, like I, like, um, I can't say that's one of my top 10 guys. I can't say I enjoy his stuff. But obviously, he's a complete icon of the business. And then in a bizarre twist of fate, I've gotten to hang around with Bruno so many times backstage at this show backstage at that show and what you said was the truest thing and the the best way to encapsulate it which was you know that he's a northeastern star that um supersedes the business he is way bigger than the business and he's like a northeastern sports celebrity as opposed to you know like a wrestler or somebody who's sullied with the wrestling business He's not a cheap chase strongbow. He's like he's on another plateau than that. And as you said, the reason for that is because of his class and the way he conducts himself. Yeah, you know, it's like I don't think there were too many wrestlers that the major sports stars of New York from that era would just name check. But I bet if you went up to Mickey Mantle and said, "Mickey, uh, do you know any wrestlers?" He would say, "Well, I know Bruno." Because, right. Because even though Bruno wasn't really running in the same circles as a wild man like. Mickey Mantle, they would see each other at different things, you know, and, and you would know the other big sports celebrities and the way he handled himself at all these conventions, you know, I still don't see wrestlers that handle themselves the way that Bruno did. He would show up in his blazer. He always looked very professional and uh, he was never, totally. over, you know, he was never overly friendly and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean, he would converse with you. He would talk with you. He would, he would. Be respectful, and you know, obviously, you give the respect to Bruno San Martino, right? But it was never like a giant smile, like "Oh, hello, it's great to see you." You know, he- right? Yeah, yeah, he was very down to earth, and he didn't like walk around with his chest puffed out or anything like that. And I remember one time in particular; it's a funny story because he actually, you know, corrected me on a, a fact about the story of the life of Bruno San Martino. It was in 05, and this was just around the time that uh, Edge was becoming the R-rated superstar. And he was, it was the whole love triangle with Lita and all that stuff. And um, 
he was apparently very turned off by the the storyline, the verbiage, and all that stuff. I barely paid attention to it myself, but it's just whatever I read in the Observer. I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing. I saw some clips of it, whatever, because I didn't even watch it back then. So Bruno's like, his big thing was like, I don't watch it, but I happen to see this. So he's like, oh, I don't watch that. I was standing there with like Norman Smiley and maybe somebody else, Colin Bowman from WCW Magazine, and maybe some other people. And um, just went up to Bruno to be nice, just because he's Bruno, you know, just to say, hey, how are you? And he's like, you know, I think it's disgusting what uh, what they did on TV. I didn't see it, but I heard Edge is doing this thing with the R-rated lover and everything. And I go, well, you know, it's just he has to do what they tell him to do. Those guys don't have any autonomy. He goes, you can quit. You can refuse to do it. I go, yeah, but you're Bruno. And he goes, well, they black. He goes, nobody goes, well, they blackballed me. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. You're right. Touche. So that was, you know, that was that conversation with him. But he's like, you know, like you say, he's very like he just approaches you as another human being. And um, yeah, he was really like, you know, we say it as a joke about, you know, the cliche, but he really was a classy guy, a real oh, gentleman. Why not? <laughs> Well, one thing I do love is when he was on the Donahue show, it, it was always a source of amusement for me and my friend John Mastandrea, because if you remember when he was on the Donahue show, it's Meltzer, Superstar Graham, and all these people trying to bring Vince down yeah, in front of Bill Donahue and everything. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it was a very anti-Vince crowd and everything, and and uh, Vince stood up for himself, and he's like, well, this doesn't speak to the fine people that we have at the WWF. <laughs> and everybody was, like, buying it for a minute, and Bruno goes, oh, you poor people. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it was so funny to me because it's like, okay, even if they believe him, it doesn't affect their life. <laughs> like, oh, you poor people. <laughs> like, if only you knew the truth about this man, you poor people. I thought that was so funny, being that it doesn't affect them one iota. And he's like, oh, you suckers, you're falling for it. The other funny thing on that episode, is, and there's a lot of funny right. things and sad things and weird things on that episode, but John Arezzi tries to explain a legitimate story that he had actually talked about on his radio show. And Donahue sets him up and goes to him and he goes, yeah, well, you know, the karate kid who's one of the midgets, he was uh, molested. <laughs> And he went to Lord Littlebrook, who's the leader of the midgets. <laughs> just, you can't talk about that without like, Right. So the audience starts giggling and John realizing, like, goes, I know how this sounds. <laughs> right, right, exactly. He's like, I know, I know, but it's wrestling. This is normal to us. I wish like we could just like watch a trial where one after another, these guys are introduced to like people who don't know who they are. The defense oh, calls my God. Lord Littlebrook to the stand. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I'd like to call my uh, <laughs> expert witness Little Beaver, everybody. <laughs> well, listen, that's number 10, Hot Bruno. I'll tell you. Number nine this week in the top 10, a man that continues to, uh, I assume a man, fascinate everyone, Yo Mamba the Jungle Savage. Yo Mamba the Jungle Savage. Totally awesome. You know, uh, now we mentioned that Terry Garvin, Sims, friend of the show, uh, unfortunately passed away. The chances of finding out who your Mamba actually is have gotten so small, and we got to find a way to do it. But let me ask you this. Are there any wrestling mysteries that you've always wondered? Anything that was just unanswered that you wondered, what could the answer be? Sort of like, who is your Mamba the Jungle Savage? Well, yeah, such as, um, um, 
It's actually a new bit I'm working on called Howard Baum's Lukewarm Take, <laughs> in which I take things that people take for granted and then second-guess them. And I would say that one of them is, if he is truly the man that they call Sting, well, why don't they just call him Sting? That's your mystery? <laughs> <laughs> There's a mystery. S. Dave Fenzer. This is a solvable one. And I think I have the answer. It's because... When you announce something, you have to lead up to it with your voice, and you can't just say, Sting! You have to get your throat going and say, The man they call! You know, and so I think I answered my own well, no, in search of well, right no. there. Vader was the man they call Vader, because once they got rid of Big Van, they couldn't just go, Here is Vader! So they had to go, right. The man they call Vader! Sting was, This is Sting! Oh, they didn't call him the man called Sting? The song was the man called Sting. Oh, man, now I'm all fucked up. Are you serious? Yeah, the song was, he's a man called Sting, because I remember the lyrics. He does this, he does that. <laughs> and he's just like, what? Like, who wrote this, Jimmy Hart? No, but... Uh, oh, my God, apparently. <laughs> no, he was, uh, this is... I hear Gary Capetta doing it. This is Sting! I can't hear Penzer doing it. Okay, that. well, I have another one for you then. Then okay. why um, ponder this? El Grand Goliath of Gordman and Goliath was neither grand nor big. That's one that actually, when I was a younger fan, I would see his picture in the magazines. I, I hadn't thought about this in so many years. It's so funny you bring this up. But I remember seeing him being like, that's a little guy. He looks like the yeah. little guy on the Bad News Bears. That's the Grand Goliath? Right, he's the size of the Twin Devils, and it's like the Grand Goliath, because, you know, in the magazines, probably I saw him, like, a couple times, I'm like, oh, this is a big guy, like, because most guys out there are small, and this is the Grand Goliath, he's probably the biggest guy. Then I saw him on TV, he's the same size as everybody else. I never got that. Yeah, we need to really dig in and find out the origin of the name. Well, maybe we should ask some of the L.A. rats at the time. Maybe they can shed some light on that. And I'm sure Kurt Brown could point us in the right direction of finding out which rats we should be talking to out in L.A. I just have a hunch. Maybe. <laughs> he may know. Dr. Jerry Graham may have introduced him to some very uh, devious characters that maybe have an answer to this question. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah, we still don't know who your Mamba is. We'll still keep trying to figure it out. And uh, your Mamba 605 shirts, we still have a few in stock. So if you want one of those, now's the time because uh, I don't know how much longer. I don't think I'm going to redo that one. I think that one's going to be one of those collector ones. Once it's gone, it's gone. But number <laughs> nine in the top ten, Yo Mamba. Yo Mamba. The Jungle Savage. Yo Mamba. The Jungle Savage. I will tell you more about him later, you cowardly dog. Number eight uh. this week in the top ten, <laughs> disappointed Lance Russell. Ah, uh. numero uno, numero uno. And I hit idol for some reason there, but uh, Lance Russell, disappointed Lance Russell. You know, you've talked about Lance in the past on the show, obviously, uh, several times, and you were around him different times. How would you compare Lance to Gordon in terms of the way the fans in the home area thought of them? Not compare them well. as their styles, but in terms of the way the fans appreciated them or thought about them. Well, I think um, I think the fans looked at them both exactly the same way, but I, I, the answer I'm going to give is exactly what you would imagine, because Gordon was a little more standoffish, and Lance welcomed you like a long-lost uh, relative, and that's the only difference. 
I mean, if a, fan, if a fan went up to Lance Russell at the Mid-South Coliseum, he would probably shake their hand, smile, talk to him oh, for forget a second it. he wasn't busy. Depending on how much time he had, the bell could be ringing for the match, and he'll be talking to some guy. <laughs> what about Gordon? I mean, he, Did fans have access Gordon, to Gordon? Gordon's... You see, um, Gordon was a Tampa guy. He came down to Florida, very came down to Miami very sparingly. So it wasn't like I got to see him over a period of time. But um, when I did see him, that would be his mo. Like he was very, um, he was standoffish. He had the old school mentality of that: you're a mark, and you're going to be treated as such. He put me through quite a routine the first time I met him, and I appreciated it, and I laughed about it. My friend went up to Gordon and said, man, if you would – well, he didn't say man, but he goes, if you would have – if anyone else would have done that to Howard, Howard, like, would have ripped him a new ass, and he just, like, loved it because it's Gordon Sully, for God's sakes. He could, you know, just to have a conversation with him is the greatest thing ever. Wow, so he started he ripping was, you there, and he didn't even stop until he pretended that, you know, he started doing that low talk thing in New Jersey at the bar. <laughs> He's been fucking with you for years. Yeah, that was a shame. That was a lost opportunity, that low-talking thing. His, yeah, But, you know, he knew that he was terminally ill at the time, and his wife had just died. Yeah. This is in 98. I remember that. And he was, he was in a bad way. He was very depressed. You could just tell. And he was a shell of himself, and uh, he, he kept drinking and smoking because clearly his attitude was like, fuck it, you know? Because he, he's like, the doctor told me to stop, and I'm like, why should I? You know, he knew he was done. Yeah. That happens a lot when somebody's wife goes or one of the spouse goes. That happens a lot. They lose heart and uh, they go quickly after, mercifully so, I think, in a lot of cases. And, um, but no, he's like classic if you get to know him and sit down with him and get to hear him tell stories and stuff. But Lance was a different level altogether because Lance was just exactly what you would think. He would talk to you forever, <laughs> no matter who you were. Who was the most approachable and the most unapproachable person in the Florida office or in the Florida promotion? If you're at a show and someone is exposed, someone's out in the open and you could go up to them, who was the most approachable and the most unapproachable? Well, clearly Dusty had to be the least approachable. And as the old saying goes, most of the heels were totally nice. Like J.J. Dillon, Jimmy Garvin, Jake the Snake, Kevin Sullivan. At that time, couldn't have been nicer. And, uh, I also used to give Barry Windham photos and stuff like that and Scott McGee. So all the baby faces were really nice and approachable. Mike Rotundo, all those guys. And just Dusty's the only one who never had any time for anybody. The biggest baby face star. Right. Exactly. That's wrestling for you. Well, that's number eight for you. Number eight, disappointed <laughs> Lance Russell. Tell him in Mexican just to get out of here. I don't want to see you around here anymore. Will you get that stupid fool out of here? Number six this week in the top ten. Oh, Lord. Howard. I got to consult my lawyer for this one. Do you remember? 1982. Hey, Princey, Princey, Princey. Wow, that is some, that is some pan flute solo. Jeez, Louise. 
Hammer. It's the Black Scorpion. Is that the extended Jan Hammer mix or what? Jeez, I think you just... You know what? I, I haven't been playing my original Animoog uh, lately on the show. I've been using a different phone for the app. So uh, this time I went back to the original one, my iPhone 4S, which is sitting here and still works perfectly somehow. Amazing. But it's the only thing I use it for now is for the musical instruments that are actually on here because it plays really good. And uh, Oh, that's go. quite an endorsement. So you got the uh, added mix there. I'm going to put out a Black Scorpion album pretty soon. Stay tuned for that on Arcadian Vanguard uh. Records. That's number seven this week in the top ten, The Black Scorpion. Number six this week in the top ten, the always popular Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. Uh, Brother Midnight is still incommunicado at this very moment, battling the government in Canada. I can't say too much more than that. I will be getting in touch with him again, hopefully, and reaching out and seeing what we could do. And uh, I also know Marty Gold, our friend up in Canada, knows him, so... He wants to come back on. He said he wants to come back on. He just has a few things he has to deal with. So Brother Midnight will be back soon. But until then, we, of course, have this. Baby, baby. And, of course, we have this. The regulator, innovator, dominator, creator, updater, pussy, imitator, assassinator, baby. Well, there we go. Uh, number six, Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. Did you ever get into hip-hop, Howard? I'm not in the least. Surprisingly enough, the, 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 my my hip hop career ends and begins with uh, Blondie Rapture. What about Two Live Crew when they were heating things up in Miami? I used to go to their clubs and stuff when I was a young man looking for cheap thrills. I went to Luke's Club and all their booty contests and everything. <laughs> I got over huge there, by the way. You know, I was like the king of that place. <laughs> How'd you get over huge? <laughs> <laughs> no, I went once and I'm like, that's it, I'm done. But like, I wanted to see it, but. No, thanks. <laughs> My friend Jackie Johnson was friends with uh, Luke. He was into that stuff, but nah. I'm a pure old-school rock and roll guy, you know. I remember the Fat Boys. See, I like when rap was innocent. I remember the Fat Boys and when LL Cool J came out and he was all squeaky clean. It's before everybody started getting face tattoos and, like, you know. <laughs> I don't get the <laughs> face tattoo business. thing. I don't get it. I don't. The neck yeah. tattoo and the face tattoo, I just don't get. I don't understand. I yeah, that's know. craziness. And the whole <laughs> neck thing, the, the whole neck thing, that looks so painful, the neck tattoo, my God. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I, I don't get it. But anyway, uh, number six, Brother Midnight. Number five this week in the top ten, the always popular old lady, Mrs. Spencer. <laughs> you have anything you want to say to Mrs. Spencer, Howard? Just, I like that. I like the, um, the demure aspect of that. The, hey, stupid. Wake up, you stupid jackass. <laughs> Who are so you, you should mar- what do you want <laughs> you should market a um she that should be the first thing you hear in the morning like as an alarm clock you know go to hell you son of a bitch you <laughs> you're a liar and a bastard <laughs> Almost that's the one him. Cornette made um iron she call her up once right homosexual jim <laughs> you motherfucker motherfucker Antipress is number one. Well, there she is. Number five, <laughs> the old lady, Mrs. Spencer, with a little surprise run in at the end by Antichristo, the blase uh. Antichrist. But uh, number, number five, excuse me, old lady, Mrs. Spencer. Number four this week in the top ten, one of the most popular, if not the most popular, because he's always there, orgasmic Larry Nelson. No, I... And now the short form. No. What's the stipulation? Are we having fun, people? Who's your favorite <laughs> wacky wrestling personality? Well, geez, that's like saying, 
This is your like favorite circus clown. It's like everyone in wrestling is a wacky personality. <laughs> Who's my favorite wacky person? How could can you define wacky personality in the world where everyone is wacky? Well, you watch Larry Nelson and he's wacky because everyone in wrestling behind the scenes is wacky, but front of the camera they try to present you know a cool facade larry nelson's eyes are bugging out he's jumping up and down he's, uh, he's got the coke sweats everything's happening right well if you read his uh, biography that's kind of like uh you know i don't it. know if he was naturally i don't <laughs> know if he was naturally wacky but he was pretty wacky i mean geez who is wacky in wrestling see i always i like the crazy acts i always liked um like the sheik and abdullah i don't know if you would really call it wacky but Who's wacky? Jeez, I wish you would have said that to me a day ago and I could have thought about it. But the more I think about it, I I don't think anyone's more wacky. What could be more wacky than a guy showing up to a building, getting into his underwear, walking down an aisle in front of 5,000 people and pretending to fight somebody else? Well, that's and then, true. And then, but... and, then, and then doing interviews about it and then continuing to do it for the next week. I mean, the whole thing is wacky. I miss the days when the guy did the interview in their clothing and then wrestled in their outfit. And if they did an interview right afterwards, they'd still be wearing their trunks or whatever. But they would show up in their suit or at least a collared shirt or something. Now it's just like everyone who's being interviewed is just walking around backstage, no shirt, no pants, no shoes. (laughs) Everyone's just walking around with fucking pants on. I like the old days of the run-in where, like, the preliminary guys had to stick around until the main event because they had to save the baby face, and they all came out, like, barefoot in their jeans like they were all in the shower. Yeah. Dundee, once, <laughs> I remember, on Memphis TV, came out with, like, soap and, like, shampoo all over him. Yeah, yeah. He must have just – I like the idea of it in storyline. You know, like, oh, Lawler's getting hurt. Where's Dundee? He's in the shower. Go get him. We right, right. Needs you. And he runs out there with covered in soap. Uh-huh. It's believable. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's number four. Orgasmic, Larry Nelson. Oh, Jesus! Gravity! I want to take you back in time. He didn't blink, he didn't fall, he did nothing. Look out, Baron Von Reisky! (laughs) (laughs) Number three this week in the top ten, someone who made her debut last time, and boy did she get over. We got such an overwhelming reaction to her. (laughs) That is hiccuping fabulous moolah and i believe we now have a connection all the way to south carolina to a private ranch a private compound and i believe we have hiccuping moolah on the line let's go to this recording right now here at number three this week in the top 10 is someone who has quickly become very popular here amongst the 605ers and that is hiccuping fabulous moolah and i believe she is on the line right now moolah are you there why, hello, Brian, and hello to the 605 Podcast Universe. It's it's great to be here tonight, Brian. You sound well. <laughs> well thank you very much. I'm glad that you could sense that in my in my tone. I actually am not feeling that great tonight. You know, I'm having the dickens of a time trying... <gasps> oh, there we go again. Well, Bernard, could you just bring my... <gasps> I'm so sorry, Brian. If you could just bear with... <gasps> if you could just bear with me for one moment... I am so sorry that you had to witness that, Brian, in the Super Podcast. You know, it's the one under the purple negligee next to the pill bottle. Four of them. I am so sorry to everybody that might have picked up on some of that. I certainly hope that you didn't. The blue one! Spread the pills on the peanut butter and toast the bread. 
I swear to Dickens, if these people are going to be on my last nerve. Well, the hiccup. Hi, everybody. Let, we could just start all this over again. Okay. Um, I swear, if he doesn't come in here with my medicine, I don't know what I'm going to do. I was diagnosed with stage three vapors this, this afternoon. My stage doctor three, said. What? My doctor came in and he said, Lily. She said, Lily. He said, Lillian, you please have yourself a seat because I've got some news for you. You have got stage three vapors. Apparently, it comes it comes from consuming too many mint too many mint juleps. I was I was not aware of I was not aware of that. Although, as you know, when Johnny May and I Johnny May and I were shooting tough titty. As you know, when we were shooting the Tough Titty series... The Tough Titty series? It's a series now. Because the movie was so successful, Brian. <laughs> in 1940, King, King Features contacted us for a series of shorts <laughs> that were to be shown before all the Shirley Temple movies in between the, the Three Stooges and some of the war material, some of the war footage. Of course, of course. So we had the entire tough, we had the entire tough titty series. Of course, you know, uh, a young W. C. Fields starred in one of those. That was that one took place on a subway. It was called Titty Touches. Okay. That was a very big one for us. Anyway, I digress. Um, you know, speaking of that, Penny Banner, somebody who's been speaking a bunch of rhubarb about me. I would just like to say. Penny Banner, I never slept with half the people that you said, and I what? I never did all those things. But just because you were with Elvis, you never heard me going around say that I was one of the first people to taste the Jimmy Dean sausage. Okay. <laughs> Mula. And I'm glad I put that out there. And Penny Banner, you are a, you are a feckless. Whoa. You are a feckless. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know where my medicine is. All right. Well, Mula, it sounds like you've calmed down a little bit. I want to congratulate you. You are at number three this week in the top 10. The sky's the limit. You're moving up. The listeners have really reacted well to you and you're hiccuping here on the Super Podcast. You know, have you ever tried sleeping with a 35 pound woman curled up at your feet like a sack of potatoes? <laughs> I am beside myself here, Brian. I'm just barely trying to get it together. Oh, my stars, I've got on Twitter. I've got my Twitter working. Do you want to hear my first tweet? You're on Twitter now. I would love to hear your first tweet. I am on Twitter at Hiccuping Moolah. And my first tweet, it just went out. How about that? Isn't that adorable? It says, <laughs> at Penny Banner, <laughs> you are a feckless cunt. Whoa! Moolah. Now, Brian, I'm going to have to excuse myself because it is 10 p.m. Oh, excuse me. Jason, where's that my comedy? I swear to God. It is 10 p.m. here in South Carolina, and I am due for my nightly midget undercarriage expression. Wait, what? I am due for my nightly midget hygiene undercarriage check. The what? I have them line up in alphabetical height. From 1.2 inches all the way up to our giant of 3.6, Miss Lily. 
Alphabetical. And we inspect the undercarriage. We inspect the ticks every night behind the ears. The undercarriage, a full sweep. <gasps> oh my goodness, I was feeling so good there for a while. I yeah, forgot yeah. I was hiccuping Mula. Yeah, Brian, did. you had better let me go. Okay. I swear to God, I could talk to you. <gasps> I could just talk to you all night, you piece of sugar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anything you want to say to the 605ers before you leave, Mula? You know that you are number... (gasps) You know that you are number one in my heart. There she is, number three this week in the top ten, hiccuping fabulous Mula. Howard, I don't know if you've had a chance to hear this on the show, but hiccuping fabulous Mula has really gotten over in a very short amount of time. I haven't had the opportunity, but I hear she's a real corker. That's number three. Number two this week in the top ten, Hot Dog, or Hot Dog and Last, though, as I'm... Oh, my favorite. I gotta say, Hot Dog's the king, the king of comedy. Of course, Hot Dog interrupted the show last week to uh, play an exclusive track by the Ruin Brothers from Ramsor Manor. I still haven't figured out why Hot Dog and Dolph Ramsor were in communication, but Hot Dog is back this week. I had a few moments to speak to the delusional radio host himself. Let's go to that recording right now. Here at number two this week in the top ten, rising in popularity somehow, is none other than Hot Dog. And I believe he is on the line right now. Hot Dog, are you there? Hot Dog and Lasto in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) We're number two, Lasto. You're number two. two. That's right. Number two, we try harder, just like Avis Renicar. Okay, all right. Well, you're number two this week in the top ten. As I said, rising in popularity what do you attribute this to well just a couple of weeks time since we moved from our afternoon drive slot to mornings and we're already number two how do you like them apples I don't, <laughs> hot dog and lasto show yeah i don't know what you're talking about by the way if i did have a radio show i'd prefer afternoon drive i know it's not as lucrative as morning but it's what i'd prefer but anyway hot dog uh we didn't move time spots or anything else so i'm not exactly sure what you're uh, referring to i was told we're in the morning now we've got the ruin brothers coming up later in the hour by the way by request no we no we, we do not have the ruin brothers coming up later in the hour by request, oh, who, who made the don't, request don't wait for the postman if you're looking for a letter from me there won't be any more well you know what that means right no it, what, what is that it's time to dig into the old hot dog and lasto mailbag to oh answer some of these cards and letters that come in from our loyal listeners. I, I, <laughs> Everyone loves these mailbag segments. Are you ready, Teach? Uh, well, let, don't call me that. But let, let's let's see what this uh, what this is. Okay, our first question comes from John Fell in Glen Burnie, Maryland. Teach? Wait, wait, John Fell in where? I have it as Glen Burnie. That's what it says on the on the envelope. He oh, begins, I I love the show, guys, especially Hot Dog and his hilarious antics. Ah, oh, what a swell thing to say. Thanks, John. That's it? <laughs> There's no joke there? He, he further writes, my question is, who would win in a shoot fight between Brock Lesnar and that double-tough hombre, raw-boned Swede Hansen? I'm going to let you feel this one, Lasto. I don't want to see now you're going to make me answer something seriously. That's ridiculous. But I, I would take Brock Lesnar over Sweet Hansen, I think. I don't know. Sweet Hansen was from Columbia, South Carolina. That's right. I've That's heard right. that he would fight a buzzsaw and give it the first two rounds. <laughs> well, if Gordon yeah. Soley was around, sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, the buzzsaw cut off Sweet's hand in the third round. And then they stopped the match. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, what a mess. They never explained how you do fight a buzzsaw. Did they? It's not good. I'll put it that way. Not good. <laughs> All right. Well, that was uh, one letter. Was that the uh, the one letter we're going to read this week? Oh, I've got a whole sack full of letters here. Oh, great. This one is really unique. Our next letter was written on uh, an origami armadillo made from easy wider rolling papers. It's sent in from Cosmic Kurt in California. <laughs> Yeah, well, he writes, I love the Hot Dog and Lasto show, especially when Hot Dog plays all those crazy records from his collection. You should do a whole show based on that. No, no, oh. no. <laughs> we will not be doing that. Thanks for that suggestion, Kurt. I wish you were our program director. What say you, TGBL? That won't be happening, and that's a bad idea. <laughs> that's a very bad idea. No one wants to hear that. Well, it wasn't really a question anyway, but thank you, Cosmic Kurt. And let me reach way down deep in the mailbag for another letter. Okay, yeah. Here's a letter from <laughs> Hot Dog Lover in Campbell, California. <laughs> what a moniker, Hot Dog Lover. <laughs> ah, I can barely read this handwriting here. It's so tiny. <laughs> but here it goes. He or she <laughs> writes, are you Alan? You know, I'm not I'm not sure I even understand the question. I'm not Alan. I'm Hot Dog. I don't understand the question either. What? Maybe this is a question for you, Lasto. Are you Alan? <laughs> what? I don't understand the reference. I don't understand any of this. <laughs> Alan. It says, are you Alan? He spells it hashtag A-L-L-I-N. Are you Alan? <laughs> Maybe they're thinking of Alan Blackstock. No, no. <laughs> or maybe Miss, Mr. Alan Martin, the legendary wrestler slash manager. No, I don't think that's, uh, I think you're mistaken. I think he's referring to the independent wrestling event that's coming up in Chicago, All In. Wow, I'll have to bone up on that. Like, once again, I don't think we really answered your question, hot dog lover. Maybe you could resubmit that one and uh, add some more details. <laughs> All right, well. It was Nonetheless, yes. number two, me and you. <laughs> I did want to mention, if I could. That we now have a Twitter account at 605 Hot Dog. Can you believe it? You do indeed now have a Twitter account, Hot Dog. It is uh, managed by you. I have nothing to do with it, and uh, I am not behind it. Twitter is really cool. Everyone is so nice there. I, I really did want to respond to one fan on Twitter who said that we could never get 10,000 Twitter followers. To that, I say, I'll take that bet. I will take that bet. Really soon, we're going to be number one across all platforms, ratings, books, top 10 lists, and parody <laughs> accounts in no time. 10,000 Twitter followers with your help, fanboys. Yeah. Hey, Lasto. <laughs> yes. We got to get out of here, but just want to tell our listeners to stay tuned for Eat to the Beat at noon. Uh, we're going to have a Glen Goza rock block. What? <laughs> Eat to the Beat. <laughs> Until then, hey, Lasto. Yes. We got to go. There he is, Hot Dog, and of course, he is growing in popularity somehow, and everyone who buys a Mothership Baseball shirt will get a free Hot Dog sticker. So if you like Hot Dog, you want to get a limited edition Kiss Cut sticker, you can get one with every purchase of the Mothership the Baseball shirt. Number one this week in the top ten, which means he challenges for the title next week. The Handsome Boogeyman, not... Jimmy Valiant, and I had an opportunity to speak to him 
earlier today. Let's go to this recording right now. Here at number one this week in the top 10, the always popular handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And I hear some clapping. Number one. There it is. Ah, (laughs) Hello, boogeyman. Oh, we celebrating here at the Boogie Mansion in Shawsville, Virginia, brother Lasto. Celebrate good times. Come on. (laughs) Sing with me, Lasto. I'm not going to sing. Celebration. (laughs) Congratulations. Number one, once again, that means next week you challenge for the title against either Kevin or the challenger today, the Magnificent One. I'd say rise right back to the top. What a great success story this is. Absolutely. Who could have envisioned such a thing? This number one top ten gimmick. Oh, we're having a party <laughs> here. We're swinging from the chandeliers and ah. paint walls black. Ah. Paint the walls Stay black. all night. Stay a little longer. Check your ego at the door and throw your shorts in the corner. <laughs> what? <laughs> party time here at the mansion. But you know what <laughs> I had to disinvite Buddy Jack Roberts said to say, I'm still trying to sell this place. (laughs) Well, well, that may be a good idea. He apparently likes to urinate everywhere and anywhere. But again, (laughs) did you you finally write the note on uh, Last Manor? Did I write the note? Did you finally sign off on your new new, uh, property there? Oh, yes, yes. It is officially mine. Yes. Oh, all right, then I'll take this, uh, I'll take this generous offer of mine off the table. <laughs> oh, oh, I can no longer buy <laughs> That's right, you sent me an ad That's to buy your house. That's up to you. Okay. That's entirely up to you. You know what? I just love being number one, setting right on ready for the uh, championship next week. A little BP, brother, a little BP. It's good for you, and it's good for me. What's BP? Boogie power, brother, boogie power. <laughs> Boogie power. that word there. Hashtag boogie power. No. <laughs> <laughs> the utterance is a hilarious side-splitting catchphrase. Turn it into an iron-on t-shirt. Print it on a pillowcase, pally. <laughs> <laughs> what exactly is boogie power? It's it's the power of my of my voluminous uh Oh, okay, I'm sorry. It's the power of my voluminous cadre of uh, loyal Sixthlefoss fans. Now ask the boogeyman a question. Ask me, how do you spell New York? How do you spell New York? A knife, a fork, a bottle, and a cork. That's how not handsome boogie spells New York. But I digress. <laughs> I don't want to go all hillbilly gym on you, but I do want to thank Boogie Team 2000 for my Phoenix-like re-skyrocketing back into the number one catbird seat in the 605 Super Universe top 10 uh, vis-a-vis their boats. Boogie Team 2000? That's right. Mothership brothers and sisters, I got y'all to thank, and I thank you I just did. A celebratory mood prevails, Lasto. I couldn't do it without the fans, and heaven knows I tried. <laughs> well, all right, Boogie Man, next week in the title match, Any thoughts on the people you'll be competing against? It's not about competition anymore between brothers or even sisters for the 605 title. There's plenty of room at the top of the top 10. Uh, It's all about community. Combined effort, baby. I got a few new original characters for the top 10 myself, in fact. A new character of my own creation. Well, Well, hold on here. 
the magnificent one not too long ago here on this program, had his own top 10 characters he was introducing. Is this what you're doing now, too? I just was inspired. I got a, a, a brainstorm <laughs> of an activity and I uh, just wanted to run this one by you. Okay. Check this out. All right. The even more handsome boogeyman, even less than Jimmy Valiant. I, I, you know, I don't know if that one's going to work. The, yeah, the even more handsome boogie, even less than Jimmy Valiant, not Jimmy Valiant. Can you imagine? Can you imagine even more handsome in the 605 top 10 alongside hiccuping Mrs. Old Lady Spencer or the most magnificent one? I, I have to say, your your new top 10 characters suck compared to the magnificent one. Hear me out. What about he, what about he versus hot dog? Mercy. <laughs> Wait, what? He versus hot dog? Yeah, even more handsome versus hot dog. As Blackjack Mulligan once said to me, brother, that's a license to print money. <laughs> well, famously, Blackjack Mulligan did not have that license. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That's a stolen joke, by the way. A counterfeit gag, if you will. <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Separate checks, please. Well, how do we get out of the segment, Boogeyman? <laughs> That's what I'd like to know. Whoa, yeah, hold on a second, Lasto. I'm hearing some kind of rumble in my rumpus room. What? I, I got to see if I need to break it up or whether to strip down and join in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Boogeyman. Well, congratulations on number one, and we look forward to seeing what happens in the championship match next week. Rock over London, rock on Chicago, Jiffy Pop. It's as much fun to make as it is to eat. Ha! Woo! Number one. Ha ha! Mercy, Daddy. There he is at number one, the handsome boogeyman. Of course, he challenges next week for the championship, the current champion, Kevin, versus the challenger who has become an overnight sensation here on the show, the magnificent one. The votes are in. The votes have been tabulated. The winner and new champion, the magnificent one. And I believe there is a celebration underway. Let's now go via telephone connection to Sunset Beach, Hawaii, for a conversation with the new champion, the magnificent one. Here he is, the man who has dethroned Kevin and is the new 605 Super Podcast Super Universe champion, a very popular man as him winning the title shows. The Magnificent One, and I believe he is on the line right now, direct from Sunset Beach, Hawaii. Magnificent One, are you there? Undercover Angel. Midnight Fantasy. <laughs> what? I never had a dream that made such sweet love to me. The Magnificent One. What would you like to know? <laughs> well, Brian Last. Well, well, I have a proclamation for you. A proclamation. Before you say anything to me. Okay. What a historic day. Everybody knows the news. What a happy occasion. What a singular honor. What a climax to an amazing career. You know what I'm going to say. It must be for you to announce me as your champion of the 605 Super Podcast Universe. Well, I'll go with this just for uh, your sake, Magnificent One. Sure, this is one of the big moments in my life to be able to introduce you today as the new champion. Of course, you specifically asked the listeners not to vote for you, and this happened. But here you are now. How are you going to celebrate this championship victory? We are already celebrating as we speak. 
It's so funny you should say that, Brian Last, because I was all prepared to give you my list of proclamations and requirements for further appearances on the 605. Whoa, what? But that's not going to happen on this episode because I didn't have time to prepare <laughs> because my phone has been blowing up. They have been hitting me up on the AOL, the MySpace. My buzzer has been ringing off my hip all day. You wouldn't believe the people. We are having a party. I flew everybody in, baby. Who's everybody? Every, according to the comedy <laughs> rules of three, I have yet another group that I have got to introduce to you people and vice versa. I look around my room and it's a veritable who's that in the world of professional re- people I haven't seen in eons and de- from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the independence, Japan. You wouldn't believe. Look who just walked in. Elephant Man Mountain Link. He's not an animal, but he'll eat one raw. Okay. My man, Elephant Mountain okay. Man Mountain Link. That rolls off the tongue. Yes. King Kong Ted Bundy. He insists <laughs> on at least a five body count. Okay. Very dark. Yeah. The magnificent one is taking a very dark turn. I think so. Not my kind of material, but I couldn't turn her down. Look around the room. Burhead Von Raschke, the most hard-headed Nazi sympathizer you have ever come across. <laughs> Burhead Von Raschke. All right. Oh, what else would you like to know? No, just put that lasagna over there. Next to, next to the Chipotle. Next to the... I'm very sorry about that. Who are you talking to? Don't take those ribs either. All that goes together. Keep that eye. Put that plate on there. Who? Oh, look who just walked in. Yeah? Who? I can't believe. He came all the way from wherever he lives now. Clinically depressed Jimmy Hart. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a ridiculous... (laughs) Man, guys, I just got to say, you know, I've been sitting there backstage and this is the worst day of my life. I don't even think I'm going to be able to make it Monday night, guys. That's all I have to say. Oh, he is a bummer. That is clinically depressed Jimmy Hart. Oh, my goodness. Look at that tall fellow. It's famous wrestling historian and punk icon, Yohei Ramon. Yohei Ramon. He knows everything about the history of this great business. That one, my friends, is courtesy of my friend, the hot dog. In a bit of, in a bit of, Professional courtesy, hot dog, let me have that joke. He let me have that. That's professional courtesy, Brian Lass. You should look into it. What would you like to ask the Magnificent One now that he has ascended <laughs> the top of the mountain of, of your fiefdom, of your universe, now that I am literally your king well, in the uh, castle that you have built? Yeah, okay. How does that feel to be cornholed in your own domicile, a cuckold, if you will, in your own creation's creation well magnificent one it feels all right but i have to ask you what do you think about your challenge next week the handsome boogeyman not jimmy valiant oh i have very little prepared for the handsome boogeyman because i was concentrating on some other people but if you must know (laughs) handsome boogie and i have gone round and around who will ever forget the time they broke his $30 Walkman on live TV and he had to go music list for <laughs> literally four tapings because apparently they weren't paying him at the time. His, his big low ride, riding, big, uh, what do they call those uh, jeans? 
Oh, God, you <laughs> caught me today, man. You could, luckily, I got one of my friends here. It's Man Molehill Dean. He what? used to be Man. He used to be Man Mountain Dean. Had the gastric, fresh off the battle of his life with diabetes number two. That's Man Molehill Dean. Okay. Used to be Man Mountain Dean. I got it. I got it. I, I don't got know it. if you. I got social it. <laughs> social anxiety, Harley Race. This is why this is the last in a series, Brian. Last, we won't be. I'm going to be forced for all new. It's going to be a new era next week. But we got to get this out of the magnificent one system. I don't even know if I sound like myself so weak. This week, I'm so touched. Let me tell you, social anxiety, Harley Race. He is the toughest man alive, unless you look him directly in the eye. <laughs> social anxiety, Harley Race. One can only feel for that man. ECW Bruno. Hey, I'll fuck you up, Raven. <laughs> ECW Bruno. What a legend. <laughs> hey, you don't know who you're talking to, Sonny. I'll fuck you up. <laughs> Come over here, Tommy Dreamer. You'll see your slime. Okay. Oh, you poor people. Okay, okay. Tremendous. ECW. A lot of legs on that one. ECW I like that. Bruno. I like that. Well-mannered Bernard. Nice to see he finally got his act together. He was always a good guy. Oh, Bruno. <laughs> Guys, that's all I... Oh, wait a second. Is that who I think it is? Walking into my place on the beach, opening the veranda. It is. It's Dungeon Master Bob Cottle. Oh, no. As I live and breathe. Oh, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, hey, fans. As you know, I just got in from the World Titty Fucking Convention in um, Copenhagen, Denmark. Okay, all right. Bob, Bill, Bob. (laughs) I let you on this thing. I like those nice low hanging ones with the big silver dollar sized nipples so you can squeeze them together and they look like H&R Puffin stuff is staring at you. Bob, that's it. That's it for you. (laughs) That's one step over the line. That's all the material I have, literally. Is there anything that you would like to ad-lib on now with the Magnificent One? Uh, Magnificent One, is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners of the show, the people who voted you to be the champion, and next week will potentially have the opportunity to vote you to be champion once again? I fully expect to be the champion for as long as I deem necessary and fruitful in my lifetime. And as much as it inconveniences me, it's the best part of my day to come on to tell you how magnificent I am. There he is, the new champion, the magnificent one, of course. Next top 10, you can vote on the championship match. The magnificent one defending his newly won championship against the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant, a big one. Voting will be at facebook.com slash superpodcast within a day or two of this show coming out. Of course, you can also vote for the top 10. Kevin will be eligible again next week for the top 10. Also making his debut as announced last week on the show. Cranky barista Ken Patera now eligible for the top 10. So some interesting things there, Howard. Awesome. I welcome uh, Ken Patera into the fold. I would love to see a three-way shootout at the top between my man, the magnificent one, not handsome Jimmy, and of course, Ken Patera. And uh, hot dog too. Those are my boys. I enjoy them all. I can't say I pick favorites. You certainly don't, but let's move on now with the show. A few notes here. I got a few show notes. Let me pull this up here. I had to move this over here. A couple things. Steve Russum wrote a comment in, and it just made me laugh, Howard. I'll read it to you. Great show. 
Don't know what my favorite segment was, but when John Hitchcock said that Johnny Valentine got off on pain, I was thinking the plane crash must have given him a huge hard-on. That's probably how they found him. So <laughs> I read Jeez, that. Louise. I read that and I cracked up for a day. Boy, this is some empathetic crowd, I have to say. Are you sure this isn't <laughs> have I have I not stumbled into the Deepak Chopra uh, web series or something? It's really I enjoy the compassion that's in the wrestling world. But no, that is a good line. I read that previously on the internet, and that is pretty. I mean, at what point does he feel pain? It's like, you want somebody? God was probably saying to him, like, all right, how would you like a seat jammed up your ass? That's not nice. This next thing I want to read here, this was sent in by Jeremy Marshall, and this was a follow-up on the conversation that Vandal Drummond, of course, Kurt Brown, and Jerry Gray had in a roundtable discussion a few episodes back talking about the Pacific Northwest and the Owens Brothers. Let me read this. This isn't a religious post. I just want to rib Brian Lass for not paying attention to a fun tidbit in Hebrew school. Or maybe they didn't teach him this in Hebrew school. But if I were a rabbi, I'd make sure to, because it's funny. I'm a Christian minister with four semesters of biblical Hebrew and two of Aramaic, which is why I'm halfway qualified to talk about this. When Vandal Drummond and Jerry Gray were talking about Elton Owen on the latest 605, they told a funny story about how he accidentally shot himself either in the foot or the balls. To which our fearless leader, TGBL, replied, Well, there's a big deal of difference between the foot and the balls. Actually, in biblical Hebrew, not so much. See, for some strange reason, the Hebrew word for feet also served occasionally as a euphemism for the male genitals. So, for instance, Exodus 4.24 to 4.26, it's a really, really weird story that ends with Moses' wife circumcising their teenage son. She then takes the foreskin and touches Moses' quote, feet with it. But that's not actually what she did. She touched Moses' junk with it. Like I said, <sighs> a really, really odd story. I've never heard that one in Hebrew school. Then there's Isaiah 6.2, where the prophets saw a vision of angels in the temple. It said they had six wings, they were flying with two, with two they covered their heads, and with the other two they covered their quote-unquote feet. Again, huh. this is actually one of those times in Hebrew scriptures where feet means genitals. A man covers his head in the presence of the divine, which is why the priests in the temple wore turbans and why Jewish dudes still wear yarmulkes. But a man hmm. doesn't cover his feet in the divine presence. The priests in the temple didn't wear shoes. And remember, when God appeared to Moshe at the burning bush, Moses had to take off his shoes. But a man does cover his genitals in the divine presence, which is why the priests wore special undergarments and didn't approach the altar on stairs. So the angels in Isaiah 6 were covering their junk. Finally, and most revealing, so to say, is this interesting nugget from Ruth, 3-4 to 3-7, where the Moabite woman comes to Boaz in the middle of the night and uncovers his feet. And Boaz doesn't want anyone to know what happened. That's because she didn't just uncover his feet. Once again, it's a euphemism for cock. He didn't write that. He wrote, it's a euphemism. It's a euphemism <laughs> Thank you for, for I'm sure he's glad that you're clarifying that. So maybe... Just maybe Barry Horowitz or someone of that persuasion told the tale and simply said he shot himself in the foot. 
and then it could go either way or not. But if you read this far, you at least got an education in one of the oddities of ancient Hebrew slang. Uh, thank you for sending this in, Jeremy. Just uh, for your personal edification, I went to Hebrew school Mondays and Wednesdays from four to six. And uh, halfway through that, we had a nice 10 minute break for challah and grape juice. That was my Hebrew school life until I was bar mitzvah. <laughs> What about you, Howard? Boy, I hated, I hated, I hated Hebrew school with such a passion. <laughs> I would make myself physically ill Tuesdays and Thursdays, not to go. And um, I remember one time. Sometimes we had to go to synagogue first, and then the class, and sometimes vice versa. So it was a class first, synagogue later day. But I went to the synagogue first, and then I came up to the class, and they were all getting ready to go down to the synagogue. And Mrs. Loss looked at me through her big eyes or big googly glass eyes and she goes howard you leave a lot to be desired and i was 12 i had never heard that expression before and i thought that's an odd time for a compliment but thank you i I thought there's a compliment in there somewhere like you leave a lot to be desired like oh whatever i have in addition to that there's still a lot to be desired. i don't know i don't know how i thought that worked but i thought it was kind of a compliment i'm like well thank you then she took umbrage at that did you guys do kala and grape juice at a we no we I, 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 during the week we had nothing there were bagels for sale and donuts for sale um but um the uh, the real action was after the bar and bat mitzvahs on the saturdays that's when you know like all your friends would be getting bar mitzvah and we would all be in the same school together so if we were invited to each other's bar mitzvah or not it was still all the same classmates from school that were in the congregation in the temple so I remember, like, I was the world's worst student. I was never into it. It was just not my thing. And, um, but the rabbi, now we're done. I got myself through it. And uh, at the end, they're like, the, um, Howard's going to do the wine prayer. And I'm thinking to myself, here we go. Never heard the goddamn wine prayer in my entire life. So the rabbi and the um, cantor flank me, and they open up the big scroll, and they're pointing to the thing, and it's all in Hebrew. And I can make out like Baruch Atadonai for all you um, Southerners out there. That's uh, you can just you can just use your imagination. But that's one of our big all the big prayers begin with Baruch Atadonai. So the rabbi thinks he's going to kickstart me like a cold engine, and he goes Baruch Atadonai. I'm like Baruch Atadonai. He goes and he's like okay, okay, go ahead. I'm like, I never heard of this thing in my life. So the rabbi had a the rabbi had to do the wine prayer for me, which now I can't get out of my head. Now I can do it. Like after that, it scared me into knowing it. Now I can do it. I think, but I won't. Let's hear um, it. Come on, Baruch Asher But I would not have got that line. Okay. And then it's like, does anyone have <laughs> some metamucil? Oh boy! I can't believe you didn't I'm do good at it. I was, I was. That's disappointing. <laughs> that was like the highlight of Hebrew school for me. But then we had the brownies after the bar and bar mitzvahs that were that was worth the whole thing. Difference between Florida and New York here. I went to a reformed temple in Long Island, and I don't know where the hell you went to. They were selling you food instead of giving you food. Well, you know, it was just before class as a convenience. Well, that I was about to say what number of the top ten this conversation is. This is not part of the top ten. I don't know how we ended up here. I want to talk about lights out. I want to make another announcement here uh, real quick. And that is we're adding a new show to the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. I'm very happy about this. John McAdam has always received a tremendous reaction 
every single time he's been on this show. He has been a favorite of mine to have in the co-host chair. We've had some amazing conversations. The Jimmy Snuka conversation we had after Jimmy Snuka died is one I still hear from people about all this time later. And I'm very happy to say John's going to be introducing his own podcast. It's going to be called Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin. Sean's a friend of John's. They're both from New England. So if you like New England accents, this will be the wrestling show for you. Stick to Wrestling, and it will be coming out every Friday. So stay tuned to the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And of course, for this, you can go to iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or you can go to McAdamPod.com. McAdamPod.com for Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin. We have some more shows we're working on right now, but this will be the newest one starting on the 15th of June and every Friday after that. And with that said, we're going to spend a few minutes now with Jerry Gray. Of course, Jerry's a big part of the show, a great friend of the show. And I want to remind everyone, Jerry is battling stage four cancer. I believe he just received news this week, confirmation that they believe it has indeed gone to his bones. That was the last I heard from Jerry. So if you hear Jerry on the show and you enjoy his stories, if you like listening to his tales, if you laugh at him, if you learn something, consider making a donation. Every little bit helps. If every listener donated a dollar, he would have exceeded his goal multiple times. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened. But if you enjoy him on the show and he's been on the show nonstop, please consider making a donation. You can go to tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. All the proceeds that Jerry gets go directly to him. And I can tell you they're all going directly to his medical bills. And they are pretty high. So with that said, let's spend a few minutes with our pal, the Golden Boy, Jerry Gray. And now let's spend a few minutes with our friend, the golden boy, Jerry Gray, this week here on the show. Once again, everyone, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. But Jerry, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here once again. It's good to have you here once again. Before we get going, and I know you have a couple stories you're going to tell us this week. So many of the listeners have supported you in your battle with cancer that's ongoing, and it's really just depleted you in more ways than one. Is there a medical update? What's going on? What's the latest news? Well... I posted it not too long ago, but the uh, the tumor markers are real high, and I have to have uh, – they want me to have, like, a CAT scan, an MRI, and a PET scan I've never even had. I think I've told you that before. For all the, It's one of the main things you're supposed to have when you first get cancer just because I guess it tests your whole body, and they've never even done that yet. But that I have so many bills, I've got caught up with the doctor, but not the uh, medical, you know, the, the test and stuff like that. I still <laughs> – who knows how much for that? Thousands and thousands. But, um, yeah, I needed a lot of different tests done, definitely. So um, one of the main things is a CAT scan and then bone. Um, they, they did a – last time they did a CAT scan on me, they said, you know, the the tech's not supposed to tell you, like, what, what your diagnosis is. But, you know, the tech that does the scan, and he was like, oh, you have a, a – uh, what you call it, uh, colon cancer, liver cancer, and bone cancer. And then I was like, no, I don't know anything about bone cancer. So that's a new one that I have uh, still haven't found out what's going on with that. I was kind of nervous to even want to know the. if I was hoping he was wrong. But then the doctor did tell me that it was growing like a bone, like my sternum was growing since it's been growing significantly since uh, the last time they checked it. And I haven't had it checked for a while. Uh, it's been about at least a year. So 
hopefully. Just trying to hopefully it's going to go away, hopefully. That's the main thing. But like I said, I just need a lot of tests done. That's the main thing right now. Still a question mark what's going on exactly. Well, hopefully you can get those tests done, and hopefully the listeners will continue to help you out, and I'm sure they will. But let's uh, let's lighten the mood a little bit, Jerry. Let's talk about a few things. I am curious. You know, you briefly mentioned on previous shows that before you were in wrestling, you did have a little bit of an amateur wrestling background. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I started actually in seventh grade in Ohio, and Ohio was real big on amateur wrestling. And I wrestled in seventh and eighth and ninth grade there, and then we moved to Florida. And actually, the training in the seventh grade, and the the coach, the training he put us through in the tenth, uh, eleventh grade, and that's how hard Ohio wrestling was. Uh, it was easy down here compared to. So I was, uh, I knew a lot compared to the, like I said, the wrestling down in Florida wasn't as big as it was up north in Ohio. So, and then, um, yeah, I had, uh, that's when I wanted to be a pro too. The whole time I wanted to be a pro, and I thought you had to actually have amateur experience because uh, every promoter I'd talked to back then would tell me, of course, you know, the old line, you had to be an amateur champion, you know, go to college, be the NCAA champion. All. <laughs> and and I'm, yeah, I remember Matsuda told me that when I was about 16. I called him and he said, yeah, win the state, go to college, uh, win the NCAA championship, then call me. I was like, wow, Jesus. So I was actually trying to do all that. And then Greg Malenko, I met him. And he goes, ah, I don't listen to them guys. They're lying. He said, hey, Graham went to the eighth grade. And he said, they're he said, well, you don't need no amateur. <laughs> he said, you don't need any amateur experience. But anyway, I'd already done it for a while before Malenko told me that. And I actually tried to uh, – I knew how what was going on because I knew an old uh, wrestler when I was a kid. Uh, Billy Coleman was his name, uh, like an underneath wrestler in the Sheik's territory. And he had told me some of the secrets. And plus, I read that book also. I'm sure a lot of people remember that. Whatever Happened to Gorgeous George, that exposed me to a lot of the secrets when I was a kid, you know. So that book that uh, I can't remember the guy's name. His dad was a wrestler, Frank Jarrett. Uh He wrote that book, Whatever Happened to Gorgeous George, and yeah, it exposed the business. Yeah, it exposed the business a lot in that book. I remember I was like, that's what smartened me up pretty much. A lot of the, a lot of the, uh, you know, the razor blades and stuff like that. So I, uh, an amateur wrestler, I decided, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, already start doing some pro stuff here. I, uh, I had a friend at one of the other schools because I hadn't lost. I, I think my record was like 10 and 10 and 0 at that time. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to lose tonight, you know, just to, so I get a good attitude as far as I know you got to lose when you <laughs> be a pro wrestler. So I, uh, I made a deal with the guy, like, I'm going to do this. Like, And you don't do small packages either in amateur wrestling. No, it's kind of impossible to do a small package. <laughs> so the, the so the coach was already getting mad because we were doing kind of like, – it was obvious. I think I have it on tape somewhere, actually, like a, uh, one of my old movie projector thing. But uh, we were doing, like, pro style kind of like uh, – it just looked – we were locking up even like a professional lockup instead of amateur, you know. <laughs> and the referee was like, "This is, you guys aren't on TV. Come on, get the – you know, he was getting mad. The co- the uh, referee was even in this high school match, and then the coach was. He knew what I was doing because he knew I loved pro wrestling. So then at the end, I finally did like a small package and kind of uh, rolled the guy on me. And he was so furious. The coach afterwards, he knew I lost on purpose. You did a job in an amateur wrestling yeah. match. Yeah, and everybody was mad at me, the whole team, and then, <laughs> and then I and I used to I used to bleed too a lot. Uh, they stopped it for blood one time because. Uh, it was just because my nose would bleed real easy, but I'd kind of you didn't make it bump. Okay. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. But Moon, Moon Dog Moretti did. I heard. Uh, that's <laughs> what? what I heard. Yeah, I heard he did in the amateur match. Jessica Kurt Brown should know that. He knows him real good. But I heard from uh, somebody that Moon Dog Moretti bladed himself in an amateur match. 
that was the funniest thing I ever heard. But I, uh, I would actually bleed for real, like my nose hard way. And then uh, it was bleeding so bad, though, they had to stop the match. It was pretty funny. <laughs> but the uh, that was my story on doing a job in amateur wrestling. <laughs> you got to spend some time around Steve Williams. I mean, when I think amateur wrestling, he's really the guy for the 1980s. I oh, Did you ever talk to him about yeah. amateur wrestling? And what was it like being on the road with Dr. Death? Oh, yeah, he was... Yeah, I had I made a lot of trips with him. I would sit right next to him. He had a big custom van, so I'd sit next to him and then roll for him while he uh he loved to you know partake in the weed. So I would roll. He said I was the best uh, joint roller he ever met. And then <laughs> anyway, we'd be doing that. And then pretty much the other guys I rode with didn't they didn't do anything. But it was like uh, John Nord would ride with us, and who was it? Bus trip was really funny. Uh, Lord Humongous, uh, what was his real name? Jeff Van Camp. Jeff Van Camp. He need, yeah. yeah, yeah. He needed to wear that hockey mask because he didn't look like a a, a bad guy at all without <laughs> you know without that. He looked like a big baby. He was giant, you know a real big guy, like six. So I don't know how tall he was, six, 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 seven maybe. But he, uh, yeah, he was in. This is a really funny story. He was making a trip. We were doing like a bunch of shows, so we were on the road uh, in Steve Williams' van. So it was me. Steve Williams, Lord Humongous, and what's it called? John Nord. I think there was somebody else, maybe Randy Colley, the moon donk. And we, uh, okay. And, uh, Humongous was, had a feud with Jake Roberts going at that time in mid South 1985. So, so, uh, and Jake was trying to, I guess he was trying to tape uh, blades on his finger, like the old cheek used to do. To, and by the way, you guys, uh, if John Nord's in that car, Bill Watts would have lost his mind. Cause John Nord was on Jake Roberts team. Against Lord Humongous and Skandar Oh, Oh, I don't even remember that. Yeah, I guess he was. There was a whole van full, full of guys. I don't remember. I don't know. This is the other part here, too. Dr. Death would, uh, back when the Gatorade bottles, those big ones were made out of glass, you know, he would, uh, he was crazy on the road. He'd get mad if anybody would, like, fall in front of him or get anywhere near him, you know, in his custom van. He would, uh, throw that thing he had perfect aim too he'd throw it up high in the air and it come down crashing right across their windshield whoever <laughs> pissed him off oh man he was nuts and then one time i seen dr death back down all you know semis used to uh, what you call it, truck drivers used to be on the uh cb radios uh, he had one too and then he heard him saying bad stuff about him like he was driving like crap all over the road so he i seen him back down everybody he told them all he stopped right in the middle of the highway and you know how he talks and everything, Doctor Tiff. But he, uh, he was saying like, "Pull over now, you motherfuckers!" All this, shit. and then and all of a sudden, you just seen semis slowing down to almost nothing. They wouldn't come any farther. He stopped right in the middle of the road, scared them all to death. But this one time was the funniest thing about the uh, Lord Humongous, the big tough guy. He, he's in a match with Jake Roberts. I think it was a cage match, and uh, Jake accidentally had that blade and cut uh, Humongous's hand a little bit. It wasn't really anything bad. And at this time, Dr. Death had all his ribs taped up. He had like broken ribs. I had torn ligaments in my leg. And you know, you just keep wrestling, otherwise you're not gonna get paid. So so we just keep going on, whatever, tape your leg up, whatever, take your ribs up. So uh Lord Humongous is all we're just like, uh, whatever, his hands cut a little bit big barely, you know. So we get back in the Doctor Death's van and he's like starts crying like Oh, take me to the emergency room. We thought he was joking. We're like, for that? You got to be kidding. Oh, God, now he's going to kill him. You know, we're never going to get back to the next town. So he actually, we had to stop at like a bunch of different exits for some reason. I don't remember why, because it was too crowded. He wanted to get right in. He was dying, you know, bleeding to death. He said. So we kept going over other hospitals, and finally he gets in there. And uh, we all waited in the van. We're like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. And then, uh, so he actually, I'm trying to think, I think it was actually John Nord, because, 
Steve Williams would have told him to go to hell if he would have told him to come in there and hold his hand or whatever. So we're on the van, me and Williams and all of them partying or whatever. <laughs> and uh, he asked John Nord to come in there with him, uh, uh, and Humongous did. And then John Nord afterwards told us that he, uh, the doctor was getting ready to put like two stitches in his hand and said, don't leave the room. Please stay in here with me. <laughs> come we, on. We, we were just like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, it was like, <laughs> we couldn't stop laughing about that the whole, I mean, forever. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was pretty. If Watts would have heard that, he would have fired him right there. <laughs> but, yeah, it was uh, it was embarrassing. <laughs> what other guys were you around in your career that were delicate, to, for lack of a better term, who, you know, would just complain oh, and who you couldn't do anything without them getting hurt or saying they were hurt or being sensitive or complaining about you being stiff? Give me some examples. I'm trying to think because they were pretty much tough guys when I first started. <laughs> there weren't too many of them, but the newer guys that just started out um, – I'm trying to think it had to be somebody like, you know, the younger guys that probably like uh, Sting, people like that, you know, the people like the, the next generation. <laughs> Lex Luger, definitely. Yeah, Lex Luger, he didn't like you to chop him because his chest, he's going to mess his muscles up, you know. So I used to love to chop him, chop the hell out of him. And then, uh, yeah, he hated that because his muscles are going to get, you know, messed up his pectoral. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? And then, uh, Luger was one of them. I'm trying to think, there wasn't a whole lot of crybabies back then. They came later. Well, humongous. He was a newer guy too. Were you ever around <laughs> that guy in Florida who ended up suing the office, Big Daddy? Oh God, yeah, I wrestled him. Jesus, he was. For everyone listening, by the way, the Florida Big Daddy is not the same as the United Kingdom's Big Daddy. A completely oh, yeah. different <laughs> wrestler altogether, but. He was kind of a really awful wrestler with a really silly gimmick in Florida in the early 80s, right? Is that how you would sum him up? Yeah, it was about 80, 82, I think it was, or 83. And his manager, the guy, I guess, that discovered him was Bob Harmon. He used to be beautiful Bob, Bobby and uh, WWF. Yeah. Yeah, he... He was uh he was with him. He's the one that I think he discovered him and thought he was probably gonna make some big money off him and make him the next Haystacks Calhoun, but this guy was not too bright and it was horrible. <laughs> and he uh I don't know, I didn't know about the exactly what happened in the lawsuit, but I know Dusty had to <laughs> go to court against him for something. I didn't know what they did exactly, but I know he was I mean, they should have sued him for trying to be a pro wrestler. <laughs> impersonating a pro wrestler but yeah he was pretty bad i wrestled him a few times oh boy yeah but uh dr death though man he i had a lot of stories with him because and then we that was almost the same trip i think one time we went out to a bar in oklahoma where he was like a, a god you know steve williams we went out to a bar one night it was me same guys i think steve williams uh john nord probably humongous and then i didn't drink so they're all wasted. Well, mainly Steve Williams was wasted. And he was going all over. Did I tell this story? Yet? He was going all over the bar telling everybody that I was a pro football player because there's a pro football player <laughs> named Jerry Gray. <laughs> He's a black guy, but uh, the guy named Jerry Gray. But you can't tell with the helmets and everything back then, you know. And uh, he was telling all the people in the bar that I was a pro football player, Jerry Gray, and all this. And then they all believed it. And I don't know anything about football. And they were all coming up to me. And then I don't know what he did, but he ended up making everybody in the bar so mad they wanted to kill him for some reason. The wrong guy to want to kill, you know. <laughs> and then uh, they're telling us to leave at the end. And like I said, I'm the only one that's even straight pretty much. And uh, they're telling us we got to leave. And Steve says, uh, we're not going anywhere. 
And so they didn't know what to do because they're trying to close the bar, but he's just sitting there looking. He's not going to leave. And then when we did finally leave, there's like at least 30 people out in the parking lot waiting for mainly him. They were mad at Steve Williams. And they were all screaming at girls, too. They were, like, they were all screaming at him and yelling. And then what could he have some done? girl went, I don't know what he did because I was mainly just sitting there. Couldn't wait till we leave the bar finally because he stayed forever. Mr. And then I was just <laughs> I was just one night at yeah. I was just one out of the bar. Yeah, I was looking for I was looking for women mainly. I, I didn't care about the drinking, but it was like uh, Oklahoma, some part of Oklahoma. But when we left, though, they were all screaming at him, throwing stuff at him, and yelling. And they met at him. And then uh, right when they, I got in my side next to him in the front seat. Um, some girls went to swing at him, hit me right in the nose, and he's seen this. Steve Williams, he didn't care if it was a man or a woman. You know, he's going to tear your head off. And he goes, did she hit you, brother? And I, oh, I just no. said no because I knew he was going to kill her because I said no. <laughs> my nose was like throbbing. Oh, my God. And I said, no, no, she didn't. And he's like, look like she hit you, sure, brother. And I was like, no, no, let's just go. Jesus. So then he's driving. This is how over he was in Oklahoma. I'm telling you, he was driving like all over the road. And uh, the cops just kind of slowed down to look to see they're going to pull these guys over, you know, and then they seen it was him and they must have knew him from before or something because they just kind of kept on going when they seen his face. <laughs> <laughs> there was more stories that happened that night, but I can't get into that because it was, I don't know. I don't think, I know he had a wife and everything. I'm not going <laughs> to tell what happened. Yeah. He invited some people over to our room just for a joke. It wasn't like, uh, I couldn't figure out why he invited these real big, like 300 pound girls. Come to the uh, whatever room we were staying at hotel, and I was like, "What's he inviting them girls for?" I'm like, "God, I mean, they were like big old cowgirls." And then what he did to them at the end, oh my god, he was just stretching her pretty much. Nothing sexual. He just stretching. got her down. Yeah, he got her down, started cross facing her. We thought it was like what? It was me, John. Yeah, me and John Nord, and uh, Humongous were all sitting there on the bed laughing kind of at first. Cause he just got on and started wrestling her all over the room, you know, big old girl. And he starts cross facing her. And, and I was like, what the hell is he doing? They started getting kind of rough. And then we were like, okay, man, we had to pull him off over and he's screaming. I mean, this is like two o'clock in the morning. She's screaming and he's yelling at her. I'm the devil. Ah. She's trying to crawl out of the room. I was embarrassed. I mean, cause then everybody in the whole hotel heard all this noise, you know? And then, uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny night. He's calling her Miss Piggy and everything. Come on, Miss Piggy. Uh, you know, his voice. So we were laughing so hard, though, and then we finally figured, oh, we better get him off of her because this is getting kind of out of hand. <laughs> cross her, riding her across the whole room. I mean, it was, like, pretty wild. And then she, I had no room. I was staying at a different hotel with Dutch Mantel, and I, I realized I have no ride back to my hotel room, and it's, probably like, a few miles away, and there's no way he can drive now. He's so wasted, and then... Uh, I asked that girl after he did all this to her, right? She's like all red and her clothes are all ripped off over her big, like 300 pounds. How did they start wrestling each other? I don't know. Right when we got in the room, we couldn't figure out why he invited her, first of all, to come back to our room. We were, just, I mean, his room, and we were just like, what is going on, man? This is, I think he needs, either he's too drunk or something weird going on, but it was just a rib, I guess, to rib her. And then it was just like, she looked like Terry Gordy if he weighed 400 pounds. And then, <laughs> anyway, then, uh, so I decided, wait a minute, maybe this girl will give me a ride back to my room because I have no way to get back and I'm not staying here with Dr. Death all night the way he's acting. And I actually had to get her to give me a ride. And so everybody in the hotel 
we had to go through an elevator and all this thought that I was the one doing all this to her because they heard all the screaming and all this. And then everybody's looking at me like I'm the, what an asshole this guy did that to the girl, her clothes are kind of ripping everything. <laughs> it was the funniest thing ever. He had to be there. But, but when I got off that elevator, was standing there with her and they're all heard all the screaming and stuff. And they thought that I'm beating up the big girl, you know, <laughs> it was really Steve Williams, not me. I mean, was so it, then, were, uh, were they play wrestling or was he legitimately? No, no, to... no, no. He was shooting. No, he was shooting. I mean, he was, that's why we had to kind of pull him off. We were finally, we were laughing so hard at first. We couldn't even stand up. We were all falling on the bed laughing, me and uh, Humongous and John Nord, because we could, I never seen nothing like it. I mean, he was actually wrestling her and he was riding her. She was trying to get away and all the way out to the, it got onto the, she crawled out into the, uh, whatchamacallit, the door was opened onto the, uh, the balcony of the hotel. <laughs> that's why I said everybody heard all the screaming and noise and they thought I did it at the end because that's all they seen was me and her leaving. She goes, I'm going to get him for rape. And I was like, all right, but I don't think that was rape. It was more like a stretching you, but not, not rape. <laughs> but that was, that's the craziest thing I ever seen him do. He didn't even remember that either. When I seen him like a year later in Japan, I said, remember Miss Piggy? He goes, there was a lot of Miss Piggy's brother. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you gotta be kidding. Was she a regular fan? Had you seen her before? No. Did you see her again? Never seen her. No, it was just that bar we were in. She, they weren't even a wrestling fan. It was just, I don't know where, he just afterwards, he just told after all the people wanted to kill him and the girl punched me in the nose, that other girl, you know, he just told them to follow us. There was a couple of them, but I think she was the only one that had the guts when she seen the way he looked in them. Steve Williams, follow us over to the room. She thought, I guess he liked her or something, but I don't know. It wasn't uh, anything, but I don't know what he did it for, really. It was the weirdest thing I ever seen. Yeah, what did he say I mean, afterwards? He was, nothing. He was just crazy. He was, when he had drank, he was really rough, you know, crazy. I never did. I could figure out why he did that, really. It's like I didn't hang around too much after that. Just rode with him, but I never went to no bars with him anymore. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get killed going with him to a bar. Jesus. The women will kill me. The women he picks. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that was, uh, I think that was that same trip where Humongous' hand cut, so cut it so bad. He's probably still traumatic over that. Poor Humongous. <laughs> Anyway, the uh, yeah, and then you said some other guys that were wimps, but I'm trying to think. There wasn't a whole lot in those days, and then in the late '80s, they turned into more, you know, like people that I've trained and stuff. I've seen some stuff. I was like, you got to be kidding me, man! Come on, crying over little things like you know. I remember Mondo Guerrero got some out of me one time, though, because I, uh, I we used to get have like amateur shoots almost in Oregon. Because they liked it there, you know, even though you're supposed to be working it. But some of the guys end up shooting anyway, for real, you know, like Elton no Owens liked to see us shoot. But, you know, the store where we would work and just split them. Right. But, some, but you know, it got kind of weird. Like we actually did get into a little bit of shooting. And then uh, some me and Wanda were kind of shooting. And then Elton was really getting into that. And then uh, I started chopping him after that. And he had chops, I mean, handprints all over everywhere. He was so mad. And then. Yeah, Mondo, I have to say, wine that time. <laughs> as long as he'd been wrestling, I was like, oh, my God, little handprints on you. No, no, he never was. Well, I'm trying to think of anybody that was really, Lex Luger was probably the biggest baby, like when he ran from Brody and all that, because he was scary with razor blades on his fingers. Did you ever hear him tell that story? He even admits it, how scared he was. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. he just ran, jumped over the cage, and just, he says he uh, talked to Brody afterward. Yeah, right. I, I didn't see him anywhere. I think he left the arena. Yeah, Bruiser Brody, he was 
funny. He was he was a nice guy to me though. Like I said, everybody always says bad stuff about people, but it's like you never know how they really are until your own opinion, you know. Because when I first met, did I ever tell that how I first met Bruiser Brody and uh, uh, what was it, Hawaii? Um, Bill Alfonso, the referee, had told me to go by uh, King Curtis. He rented uh, on the beach there in Honolulu, and he told me go by King Curtis when. Yeah, to go by uh, King Curtis there. He told me where it was. And he said, uh, for some weed, he's got the, like, I didn't even know Curtis, hardly, barely. I mean, once started walking over to the um, the part where he's renting, I think it was the big umbrellas and stuff like that. But I uh, walk over there, and there's Brody standing there. I never even met him. So I walked up to Curtis and said, yeah, there was another guy standing with him, too. And I was like, uh, whatever. And so I said, yeah, uh, Bill Alfonso told me to ask you for some, if you can get some weed. And he went, brother, <laughs> you know, Curtis. And he goes, uh, this is the chief of police standing here, brother. The guy that was with him, you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Jesus. And Brody just walked off laughing. And then uh, he just started saying, like, no, nah, you can't get it over here anymore. He's looking at me like, cafe, brother. And then Brody was just dying laughing. And then uh, he just kept telling me all these stories. Curtis did, like, how the marijuana's not there anymore. And I was just like, okay, I get it. <laughs> you know, this guy is not the right guy to ask in front of, you know. So then Brody thought that he thought that was so funny. Later he told me, he said, "Man, you had some balls asking for marijuana in front of the, I think it was the captain or something with the police or whatever it was." I was like, "Oh my god, that was embarrassing." Was Brody in the weed? Oh yeah, yeah. That's why he liked me after he heard that I asked for that. Right then he started smiling. I never seen him smile a whole lot, but he was smiling then. Yeah, he was really nice to me though. He was a loner. That's why he liked me, I think, because I was too. And we were in Japan together and. We were both not talking. We were in the back of the bus, like, and then he just started talking to me then because most of the guys on the bus were guys I knew he wouldn't like pretty much. <laughs> I'm trying to think who was on that tour. Not his type, though, but he, uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden he wanted me to, uh, that was when he was a booker in world class, you know? What year was that? I guess 80, right at the end almost, wasn't it? When he was, yeah, when he got murdered. Yeah, because he kept wanting, I didn't know he was the booker there, and he asked me if I wanted to go to Dallas, and I was like, who's the booker? And he just pointed to himself, and then <laughs> I was like, yeah, and actually, I finally got back in Florida after all the years paying my dues. I was like, oh my God, I want to be home for a little while, and then he kept calling Kevin Sullivan. I don't know if Sullivan remember this, though, but Sullivan was booking in Florida, and Brody kept calling him from Dallas. He, Sullivan said every week, what do you want me to tell him? He keeps asking for you specifically for you nobody else yeah you know, i was like oh my god no one hurt his feelings i'm not ready to go yet and then was he he wasn't the booker anymore when when that happened in puerto rico was he still booking in Dallas or, i don't think so i don't know for sure but i know every week sullivan was telling me what am i supposed to tell brody he's calling me i was like man he wants me that bad i felt bad for never going i probably would end up with puerto rico with him too the way he liked me that good but yeah he was he was paranoid too, and in, uh, in Japan, but he thought they were going to get him there. I remember his first tour that I did with him there. He was telling me and Mark Rocco, you know the English uh, Mark Rocco, uh, Black Tiger. Yeah. He was telling uh, me, him, and Kevin Kelly was there. Nails and Jim Duggan. He was telling us to watch his back when he's out there working on Nookie because he thought they were going to get him. And I was like, oh, this is weird. And then. Uh, yeah, we actually had to walk out kind of like halfway out to the, the ring. He kept telling us to watch it because he thought all the young boys and everybody was going to attack him for some reason. 
I never could figure that out. What what he had heat with them for, or I don't know what I think a, the the Kusa or something was mad at him for something he did. You know, I guess jumping from Baba to Anuki. I don't know exactly why he was so worried about that, but that was a weird. He said, uh, "Watch his back." He was really freaking out about it. And then he's the one that told me too. There's a pegging order over here for my one of my first matches in Japan. I don't know. Nobody else is going to tell you that, you know, but he was a nice guy to tell you. Everybody else is fighting for their job over there. They don't want to make anybody else better, you know, especially the Americans. They don't want you to get above them. He's like, it's a pegging order. You got to fight, fight for these guys, fight them. Then don't, they're going to test you, you know, beat their asses. I was like, okay, whatever you say, <laughs> scary looking dude. Yeah, but he was always nice to me, you know, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, toughest guy was Lord Humongous, I have to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, but Watts, he, uh, I was just posting a, one of my old checks. I got to look for the other ones where all the bonuses he gave me instead of fines. Yeah, I saw that. I, yeah, he gave me bonuses, though, a lot of times for, I mean, just no reason. I mean, just like a bonus for this and that. And then uh, I got fined one time. That was Terry Taylor's fault for walking up to some girl when I was talking to her because he was a baby, you know. No, that was Grizzly Smith. He was jealous. That's what it was. I forgot. Yeah, it was a younger girl, and Grizzly Smith didn't like it. You know, me talking to any of them. I didn't know at that time what his deal was. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm curious about that because you know now if you bring up the name Grizzly Smith, everyone will right away say, "Oh, that guy, what a pervert, what a nasty guy." The stories have gone. Yeah. Around. Obviously, Jake talked about it openly in that documentary years ago, and the story yeah. out there that Grizzly Smith, beyond even Jake's mom, just in general had a thing for underage girls. Did you know that? Did you hear that back then? Back then, he hit it good because I used to even ride with him and there would be like a, you know, uh, maybe 13-year-old in the front with him. And then I thought it was just like, uh, I thought he knew her parents is the way he made it out to be like, he knows her parents and she gets to go on a trip and see what it's like in wrestling. That's all I thought. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, but it was kind of weird, you know, with <laughs> now that I think about it, you know, now, but... I had no idea at that well, time, but I didn't know. You saw him with underage girls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sitting there with him, but, you know, nothing else. He didn't act, he didn't do anything inappropriate in front of me, of course, you know, but it's just like, who knows what happened, you know, when whatever they went to wherever they were staying that night. Um, but another thing, too, when I went to Oregon, his old partner, Luke Brown, was the uh, referee there, and he told the me. Kentucky. And I ne- yeah. yeah, and I never, I never even knew anything about it until he told me there. In Oregon, he said, he was saying what a pervert he was and everything. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I was kind of shocked. I was like, I thought he was just a, you know, older guy and professional and everything. I had no idea. And then I started thinking, wait a minute. He did have all them kids with him all the time. I mean, really young girls. And they liked him, actually, too. I mean, they actually thought he was, like, a great guy. So whatever he did, must have gave him a lot of money or something. I don't know. Something weird going on. I don't know if Jake told that on the that movie or not but the his grizzly's girlfriend is where jake came from jake's mom was grizzly's girlfriend's little daughter in the other room yeah yeah sleeping yeah yeah okay i didn't know if he told that on that movie or not but anyway yeah he uh but jake always acted like he hated grizzly so it's like he would have never made it as big as he did if it wasn't for grizzly i was there i seen him every minute always was called grizzly when in charlotte when i lived with him for ideas and all this stuff is like everywhere he went grizzly got him booked there pretty much he was always wanting to go back to mid-south and grizzly he'd call grizzly all the time it was like he got along with him a lot better than he makes it look like he did 
Yeah, he's, I mean, I don't know, he used him a lot if he hated him so bad. But anyway, he, uh, but yeah, Grizzly, I don't know, I guess he had to have been. Some of that stuff's true because I seen the girls in the car with him. I just didn't know what they were in there for. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of weird, you know. He did it so good, though, I really didn't even suspect anything. It just, you never would even think that. It's kind of weird, though, as an old, old guy have a young girl riding with him, you know. I never even thought anything of it, though. Yeah, but Mid-South, that place, that was about, that's the best, I think, best learning I ever had, really, because Watts, he was so, that's why it was so good, because he didn't take anything from anyone. I mean, it's just like, you're not going to get fined. Just get there and do your job. I mean, everybody complains about us. Like, yeah, they should have been fined for the thing, some of the things they did. I can see some of the stupid things. I like with the, he must just been in a bad mood when he fined everybody in that match with the, Ernie Ladd's tape thumb and, you know, all that stuff. The, uh, what was that? Uh, the one with Cornette. Everybody got fined. Something stupid. I never heard that didn't happen very often, though. It was usually something they should have been fined for some of most of the things people did. But yeah, I never did get fined. And he gave me a lot of bonuses, though. No other promoter ever did. For, I mean, one time I just took a real high backdrop, and I remember he gave me like $250 bonus. Somebody told me it was for that bump. I was like, yeah, I'm going to take a couple more of those bumps each match. <laughs> there he is, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. Once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy to help out. Help out a truly good guy and someone who's been a big part of this show for a good while now, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. From there, Howard, we're going to move on now to a conversation I had with Jeff Walton. Of course, Jeff was just on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, a fine member of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, talking about his time in Memphis in 1985. We're going to talk with Jeff about the WWA. We're going to talk about the 1960s in Los Angeles, some of the people who held the world title who may not get the respect for being WWA world champion. Pedro Morales, Mark Lewin. You rarely hear them mentioned as being WWA world title holders, but they were. In fact, they had pretty lengthy runs when you really look at it, and we're going to look at it in depth let's now go to this conversation with jeff walton i am very happy to welcome back to the super podcast a friend of the show jeff walton jeff welcome back to the program hey brian hey listeners great to be back you know i'm just sitting here by the phone i think the last time we spoke it was like two years ago and i haven't <laughs> left the phone since it wasn't you should see long. how thin i am already <laughs> Oh, come on. It wasn't that long. It wasn't that long. But every time you've been on the show, it's gotten a great reaction. And it's been segments that I've loved doing because I end up learning so much about Los Angeles wrestling history when I talk to you. And, you know, we talked a little bit off air. I think it's rather sad that in many ways, the WWA is the forgotten organization. People will talk about wrestling from Hollywood, wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium, Michael Bell. They would talk about that, but you don't necessarily hear people talk about the fact that the WWA really was a major world championship in the early and mid-60s, up until the office took the NWA affiliation at the end of the decade. But when you look at it, the WWA had coverage in Japan. It had all the top Japanese stars would come into Los Angeles. You had all the top American stars and international stars coming in there. It was a major championship. And we're going to talk about a couple of guys today who held that title and really talk about their runs in Los Angeles and why they left an impact on Los Angeles and the WWA. And Jeff, the first guy I wanted to talk to you about 
was Bearcat Wright. And I know so many people, when they talk about Bearcat in Los Angeles, they go right to the incident where he walked out, or they go right to the incident where he, I guess, I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn, he shot on Fred Blassie, who he had been friends with in the middle of the ring. And I want to talk to you about all that stuff, but let's get the backstory. Let's find out what was really going on. Do you remember when Bearcat first came into Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. Well, Bearcat had come in uh, years before, even when I, before I was a fan, actually, and it had had a, a pretty decent run here in Southern California. The trouble with Bearcat was, and I think he, to a degree he was his own worst enemy, you know, he thought that everything should come his way. And that was a a feeling that he, I think, kept most of his life and, and possibly was a detriment to his career. Now, you know, he, he wrestled throughout uh, Southern California, going to San Diego and, and uh, all the various little towns that we have out here. And the next time he came in was just before I got into the office. You know, it was in, uh, oh, around 1960, late 1962 into 1963. And I was, at that time, I was Freddie Blassie's fan club president. I know it sounds a little silly, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when you're a, a young kid and, and you idolize someone, you in those days you started a fan club. And, and mine kind of started by accident. And... Um, I I remember that uh, uh, Blassie had, was working in the territory, and Blassie was working as the WWA World Champion, and I had gone to see him in Santa Monica, and he said that he was having trouble with his now get this his appendix, and he he didn't know uh, you know he was going to try to schedule and was hoping that the appendix wouldn't burst before he was going to try to schedule between matches. And in those days, the, the big matches at the Olympic were like uh, every other week, you know. So he, he said, I'm going to schedule this. And this was around the time with Bearcat. It was around, I believe it was around early December of 1963. And Blassie, sure enough, went to the... Uh, hospital, the emergency hospital, and they said, we, we have to do something about your appendix. So they took out his appendix. Now, you know, a regular guy you recuperate is going to take at least three weeks, maybe a month, maybe more in those days to come back from uh, uh, an appendectomy. And Blassie was only a week out of it when he was scheduled to work with Bearcat Wright. Now there have been, I mean, there have been so many stories and how this, and this is what's going to happen, just like the Vince McMahon incident with uh, Bret Hart. So Bret Hart's uh, famous thing that was, you know, okay, this was long ago. This was something that where wrestling was so tight, so close knit. You, you, you know, nobody knew anything about this, and. You know, uh, I've heard all kinds of stories from kidneys and, and this and that. That didn't happen until about 1965 in uh, Hawaii when he had his kidney surgery. But getting back to this story, Blassie had the surgery and told Jules Strongbow, you know, we're going to have this, uh, he, you know, Jules actually said he's got Bearcat right on top with him and it's for the title and they're going to they're gonna go one fall and that's going to be it. 
And Jules told Blassie, can you at least go, you know, five or ten minutes, you know? And Blassie said, yeah. And uh, the idea was not to take the title off of Blassie, but to have a series of matches with Bearcat. Now, Bearcat didn't want to wait, didn't want, had his own agenda. And Bearcat ends up taking Blassie. And I was there that night, so I remember the match. I was like in the second row. Oh, wow. And took him, and all of a sudden they were by the ropes, and, and Bearcat spins him around and pins him. And Blassie's leg couldn't reach the ropes. He kept, he held him in there, and they counted three, and Bearcat grabbed the belt and was declared the new champion. Now, at that time, nobody knew anything. Nobody knew it was a screw. But afterwards, you know, Blassie got up in the ring, and I think Red Shoes Dugan was the referee, and started to, you know, with Red Shoes Dugan. Bearcat had already taken off. And from what I heard, Bearcat didn't even grabbed his clothes, grabbed everything, and took off in his car. Now, the next time they were, uh, Bearcat was scheduled to wrestle was the following Monday in Valley Gardens Arena, which is a small, tiny little arena in North Hollywood, which is not that far from the Olympic. But anyway, so I went out to Vineland Gardens Arena and was in the parking lot when Bearcat drove up. Then Bearcat goes into the arena. I was still outside. And I remember it was no more than five minutes, and Bearcat comes running out, jumps in the car with his bags, and takes off. And then we heard, they announced that on the following Wednesday TV show, that Bearcat Wright had been the commission, the WWA representatives, uh, had found that uh, something wrong and that uh, Bearcat refused to defend the title against Freddie Blassie again and had left town. And what actually happened was he did leave, went up to Roy Shire up in Northern California. And they, they finally, with the help of Shire and Strongbow, they got the belt back. And uh, Bearcat Wright was persona non grata down here for many years. But he did come back, and at the time when he did come back, I was working in the office. And he only worked, I would say, about a month, and then he took off again. His re being reliable was not the M.O. of Bearcat Wright. But he still got opportunities, and I guess that speaks to how he was able to connect with the crowd and how over he was. So on that topic, just how over was he in Los Angeles? Well, you know, I've heard people saying he was over tremendously and the big and stuff. But, you know, Bearcat Wright was entirely different than Bobo Brazil. Bobo Brazil was over, over, over here. Bearcat Wright was over here. In other words, eh, he drew okay in some spots, other spots he didn't draw. Uh, selling out the Olympic, I don't remember a sellout at the Olympic with Bearcat Wright. I remember good crowds, but no no sellouts or turnaways, you know. He was a good talker. He wasn't a great talker. He was able to wrestle. I think he was he was uh, in, in tip-top condition all the time and in great shape. Plus, he was tall and very lanky and, you know, would get in the ring and shake his hips and do his thing. And, and uh, he knew uh, a wrist lock from a, a wristwatch. And, got over 
But, you know, at the time, we also had some big stars here that were working that also drew crowds. So it wasn't just Bearcat. It wasn't just the one guy, you know, like down the road with wrestling, even wrestling today where you have a Brock Lesnar is your man, you know, that's the key guy. Well, Bearcat wasn't that. He, he was an ensemble type of a guy. And when it came to the Blassie incident, you know, again, as I mentioned to you, I always heard that they had gotten along. Is that what you know? Yes, I do know that. There was no animosity between them. It was just a thing with Bearcat. He, he figured he was going to stay here forever and ever, and he figured if he's here, he's going to be the champion. And while Jules probably promised him, um, you know, a championship match with a hold on the championship, he wanted it a lot sooner than later. And that's why that double cross, that double cross, I believe, was worse than uh, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. A lot worse. Because here's a guy who just had his appendix taken out, had the stitches in, and you could even see where it was taped and everything. And this guy decides, well, the guy's weak. I could, I could do anything to him. I'm a lot stronger. And that was pretty much the case. And he did it. What was the relationship at that point in time, in 1963 into 1964, between the two offices, between the Hollywood office and Roy Shire in San Francisco? Well, it wasn't a good relationship because Shire, you know, had tri- in 1961 had tried to come in on on the uh, Los Angeles office. He was working with Vern Gagne, and both of them tried to come in. And Shire ran two shows at the L.A. Sports Arena, which is just about a mile away from the Olympic Auditorium. So the relation, the working relationship at that time wasn't that good. Uh, also, you know, the main people in the office at the time were Charlie Moto, uh, Jules Strongwell, and Shonder Zabo, and and all three of them had been wrestlers. And of course, Shires had been a wrestler, and uh, Shires, of course, had uh, ambitions to take over all of California, and it didn't work out. Shire tried to pull something to. A few years after this, I guess it would have been, where he tried to go into Hawaii against Ed Francis and Lord James Blears, and he tried to yeah, run against them. That was the time when a lot of territories uh, were taken over by other territories or, or attempts were made. It was the same thing with Bill Watts trying to and succeeding taking over the Oklahoma Territory from Leroy McGurk years later. And also in Texas, a lot of times, uh, you know, Paul Bosch was invaded a few times by uh, a couple of the uh, other promotions down there. Uh, You know, Fritz von Erich and uh, Joe Blanchard. Blanchard. Yeah. So that that was a common thing. You attempted it, you know, either that or you bought the other guy out if he was willing to sell. And that was the way it went. But in in most cases, the invading. Uh, a wrestling promotion did not succeed because of the longevity of the previous uh, promotion. It's the same thing with us, with the WWA. Yeah, they tried it against you. Vern Gagne tried it. Bruiser tried it. Why did everyone want Los Angeles? Why did they think LA was going to be ripe for the pickings? Because it was a big, big uh, wrestling area where they figured they could really make a ton of money. There were a lot of places to go, a lot of smaller cities. And it was ripe. They figured for the pickings, you know, they didn't realize that we were doing 
just as well, if not better, than they were doing. And it, 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 I remember, and, and of course, then uh, when Mike LaBelle took over the territory, Mike was the kind of guy where he hated to lose. So he would, you know, like Vince McMahon, he would do anything he could to, to put the other guy out of business or keep him out of this territory. This period of time in Los Angeles, the early 60s, the mid-60s, so many of the names that we think of, that we, that we immediately align with Los Angeles wrestling, are the big stars there at this time. Fred Blassie, The Destroyer, Ricky Dozan. I mean, all this is happening in this period of time. How was the Olympic doing in general? And also, at this point in time, how did the spot shows do? And what was the spot show crowds like? Well, I'll tell you, the Los Angeles area and the Olympic were synonymous with creating top, top stars. And that's when Buddy, Buddy Rogers came out here. He was really uh, not a star, but he became a star once he came out here and wrestled. And this is going back into the late 50s and before he went to the Northeast. And you name them, and they were created. Nick Bockwinkle started out here. He learned to wrestle out here. He lived out here. And Nick, Nick just did jobs out here while he was working out here. But then he went to, of course, other territories and became a, a super champion for Ganya for years and years and years. Um, this was really the mecca of, of uh, wrestling um because uh, a lot of these wrestlers wanted to get into the acting business. So they would come out here and they figured they had a chance to uh, show off what they could do, show off their crazy gimmicks and everything, and someone would see them and be attracted to them. And that, that happened with Mike Mazurki. It happened uh, with uh, Moto. It happened with a lot of the wrestling stars. And that, that's what really put them on the map. The Olympic was, was going like every other week. Wednesday night was television at the Olympic with Dick Lane. So you had a, a phenomenal announcer in Dick Lane calling wrestling. He also did the Jalopy Derby. He also did roller games or roller derby. Uh, so Dick was a face on television uh, three, four times a week. And the Olympic uh, did very well. Uh, Wednesday nights, uh, were always uh, good nights because what they did was they had uh, off-TV match, which drew people in. You couldn't see this one match on TV, and usually that happened around 7 o'clock. So they would bring in a match like the Zebra Kid against Tricky Ricky Star. It was not televised. And then at 8 o'clock live, they would televise. And, of course, by then the match would be over, and they'd show the regular TV uh, jobber matches that they would do or put over the, the top guys, you know, for the every other Friday shows. So in that respect, uh, the Olympic did fine. That system worked beautifully for years. And also on Wednesday night, they plugged the various towns that were nearby. They would plug uh, San Diego that was promoted by Hardy Camp. That did really well. And Hardy was a, a seriously good promoter in the fact that he brought wrestlers in from other areas. Like the wrestlers that were in this area, the Destroyer, would go down to San Diego, but instead of wrestling one of the guys that was here locally, uh, uh, 
he would bring in um, like Ray Stevens from Shire because they got along well. So Ray Stevens would come down and wrestle the Destroyer, which is like a dream match, and one I went to, of course. Uh, you know, and so you go down there, and and the, that place was packed. And uh, at the time, you know, it was Monday night was Ventura, uh, where they had the big fire not that long ago. But the fairgrounds still there, still has the building there. Tuesday night was Long Beach. Long Beach did very well. And, of course, Long Beach is not far from the Olympic Auditorium. So the wrestlers had short trips. They would go to these, these clubs, work, and be home within an hour or so you know, except for San Diego, which is about a two-hour drive. And uh, Long Beach was Tuesday. The Olympic was Wednesday. Thursday night was Bakersfield, California. And that was Jewel Strongbow's own club. He owned the building. And so all the guys would go to Bakersfield. Uh, years later, when I came into the office, I started to run El Monte, California, which is only about three miles away from the Olympic, and I ran at Legion Stadium there for years and promoted, and I used to have uh, meetings with Jules on Monday, and Jules would sit back in his big chair, and he'd say, okay, Jeff, you take the first pick. You have any wrestler you want, and I'd, I'd say, oh, boy. I'd say, okay, Jules, Bobo Brazil. Oh, oh, oh no, uh, Bobo's f working for me in Bakersfield. <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, how about uh, Freddie Blassie? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Uh, Freddie's working for me in Bakersfield. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, can I have like the Torres brothers and and can can I put the? Oh, Jeff, you're you uh, you're just asking me a little too late. I just got uh, the Torres brothers to work for me in Bakersfield. Well, Jules, who who have I got to headline in in El Monte? And he'd say, well, you could have the Oregon Lumberjack, which was a jobber guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up making my own stars, you know. I brought in a guy that just uh, couldn't even wrestle, but we called him Country Boy Dean. And, and he was a big, heavyset guy, and I, and I made him that, uh, uh, that he lived in El Monte. And uh, I, I actually got John Tolis and and worked a whole big program with Tolis, and we sold out, and we did more money than Jules. And Jules says, wait a minute, what are you doing that <laughs> I'm not doing that you're selling out? I'm so proud of that, I had to tell you that. So anyway, Thursday it was Bakersfield, and it was El Monte. And then for every other Friday, it was the Olympic. And, and if, you, if it wasn't the Friday they were working, usually the guys were off. And then um, uh, Saturday it would be, uh, San Bernardino, uh, and 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 on like that, and, and and then we'd open up new clubs in various places like Pismo Beach or or and run spot shows up there. Santa Maria run spot shows up there. Sometimes we would do well at these at these little clubs, and sometimes uh, it was a struggle. I know for me with El Monte, I struggled. I I really did, and. Uh, Everybody said, well, you're too close to the Olympic, you're not going to draw. So that only made me want to draw more, and I would uh, film the back of my car up with uh, flyers with rocks in plastic bags, and I would drive around the neighborhood just by myself 
throwing out the flyers on people's lawns and, <laughs> and giving all kinds of discounts. But that's what you that's what you did then. That's that's how you did it, you know. And uh, the, everything was good. Everything was was on fire, and we, we kept kept having a. What was good with us is we. Ganya kept the same guys for years and years and years and years and did these squash matches on uh, television and um, uh, funny funny little story. Today's my fourth forty eighth wedding anniversary. Oh, I got married in, in Minneapolis, and I I got married at the hotel where they had the wrestling matches, and I got married on a Sunday, and they had set up the studio that was uh, on top of the Calhoun Beach Hotel. And uh, I left my wedding, I left my wife, and I went upstairs <laughs> to look at the wrestling set <laughs> that they had on TV 48 years ago today, anyway. Oh, mazel tov. Congratulations. Um, thank you. But uh, that's another story. But anyway, um, it, was a, it was a good time, and uh, we had... We, you know, uh, we brought in wrestlers uh, left and right, and a lot of guys that weren't that weren't known anywhere. We gave them their first break, and then they went on to do just tremendous things. You, you name them, you know, Roberto Duranton from from France, and Tricky Ricky Star, who went over to England and just became a huge star. And uh, of course, we Pedro Morales, who was underneath on the East Coast. And we brought him out here, and Pedro became uh, our WWA champion for a while and drew, drew tremendous car crowds. Uh, I believe that uh, Bobo drew tremendous crowds. Morales did tremendous. Uh, Blassie, of course. Uh, Killer Buddy Austin, of course. Uh, and not to put down Bearcat, but Bearcat was a good hand with the other crew. I mean, he was like a cowboy Bob Orton of today, you know, uh, good enough to, to draw for as long as he's drawn. Okay. I have a bunch of questions. <laughs> uh -oh. all that. Well, first, I started this, huh? You started, okay. this is your fault. Happy anniversary. Uh, <laughs> first, when it comes to Bearcat, obviously one of the things people still talk about to this day is he was the first widely recognized African-American world champion. Was that played up heavily? In Los Angeles? Yes. Yes, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, we I think we were always super fair at the time to black athletes. In fact, over and above. Uh, and yet, uh, when um, we had Armand Hussein come in, and he also uh, had a guy that, that just started out uh, named Samba Lomomba, uh, they came in and they worked as a tag team and uh, came up to the office and said, uh, we want to stay here. And Jewel said, well, yeah, sure. As, as long as you're drawing and making, you know, good money, you can say that. He said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We want to be the top, top guys forever in this territory. Well, that's nice. And Jewel said, look, it doesn't work that way. You're here for a while. And uh, after a while, you move on to another territory. You're going to make yourself big names out here, and you're going to be very successful, I know. But uh, there's no such thing as somebody staying in an area forever. And yet a lot of wrestlers uh, attempted that. Some of them even did that because they lived in that area. Uh, 
Jerry Lawler, of course, in, in the Tennessee area, and uh, uh, some other guys, Eddie Graham, Florida, etc. Sure. But uh, the racial thing then, the racial card came out with them. And what they did was they, uh, they sued us. They took us to court, and uh, we ended up winning. And uh, they moved on to other things. Uh, Hussein moved on to other territories and tried to do the same thing in other territories. Bear, Bearcat Wright had that same mentality. Uh, he wanted everything right away. And he wanted to move up the ladder, and he wanted to stay on top of that ladder. But that's not how the business worked. It doesn't didn't matter whether you were green, yellow, black, white, whatever. That's not how it worked. You drew for a time in a territory, and then you moved on to another territory. And unfortunately, uh, that wasn't the issue with right. Right just decided, look, if I don't get all the marbles, I'm leaving. And there were a lot of other guys that came in here and did the same thing, mainly because they weren't happy with their payoffs or whatever it was. But uh, there was no there was, uh, there was no discrimination. And the, the second time he came into the territory and when I was in the office, there was never any such thing as discrimination, nor did he ever... Uh, say that there was with anybody it was a different story with the mighty zulu who came in and he was a young wrestler at the time and uh but he thought again that he was uh you know he could walk on water and the issue was that he wasn't really drawing and and so that they told him that uh, they gave him his notice and he moved on and of course who was zulu's manager in the south bearcat Wright. There you go. So it's like a birds of a feather type of thing. Uh, you know, I, I, and I, I couldn't understand it either because uh, at the time uh, that I was working in the office, uh, I, I think everybody was treated equally as well. Uh, I was in the dressing room. There was never any grumblings in the dressing room. There was never any, uh, you know, but if something didn't go right, with Bearcat, uh, then he would, you know, like I said, take all his marbles and go home, as he did with the with the Blassie thing. And the Blassie thing, to me, was was much worse than Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. You talked about Jules Strongbow for so many years. When people think of wrestling from the Olympic, they would probably think of Eileen Eaton, Jules Strongbow, and Mister Moto. I mean, that was really the, the main people there. When Michael right. Bell did take over from his mother, how did the old guard get along with Mike? Well, it wasn't really his mother. Uh, Cal Eaton, who was uh, Mrs. Eaton's husband, he was really in charge of, of wrestling for a while, and he kind of uh, took it over. Uh, Mrs. Eaton was always involved in boxing, and uh, Cal, uh, when he first started to take over wrestling, he wasn't in good health. So uh, then what happened was that Jules wanted to retire, and Jules liked Mike very much. Mike was the treasurer and box office manager for the Olympic Auditorium, and he was Mrs. Eaton's son. And uh, 
Gene just loved the movies and did the stunts and acting in in the movies. And so he, Gene and, and Gene was a wrestler. So Gene worked and and did very well in the Texas area. And he worked here for you know underneath. And he didn't mind because he was doing a lot of acting stuff. So when Cal Eaton passed away. Um, Mrs. Eaton's name was put on as the, you know, the promoter. And eventually, uh, Charlie Moto got out of the office to handle just the Japan side of things with Shohei Baba. And so he got out and Mike took over. And Mike, Mike was all about putting bodies in seats. That was his big thing. So Mike started out then promoting, and it wasn't shortly after Mike became the promoter that I came into the office. And the value, my value was I was such a big mark, I was such a big fan, that, and I knew so much about wrestling, and not so much about the, the past history, but about the golden age, which I call it, of wrestling, which was Lassie, you know, Buddy Rogers and uh, the Torres brothers, and and all the guys that were had come in and out of here, you know. So and I and I had the fan club for from uh, 1960 through about 1967, and then it was taken over by uh, John Arizi on the East Coast, and he did a great job too. But that's that's pretty much uh, the way it came to be. Uh, it was Mike LaBelle. And uh, Moto still worked as as our matchmaker before he retired. And then once he retired, there were different uh, people that did the book. Uh, Blassie did it for a while. Destroyer did it for a while. Different guys came in and uh, handled handled uh, things. Some were very good, and some stunk. And uh, we would go up and down with our business. And, uh, you know, those were, those, some were great times working with people like that and working in the office and working at our, our meetings when we would get together on Mondays and then we would get together on Fridays before the matches and, uh, you know, go through everything and plan everything out for the next few months. And so... Uh, it pretty much ended up with uh, Mike and myself uh, handling things uh, for the longest period of time. And uh, like I say, having somebody like Moto or or uh, Leo Garibaldi being our booker and matchmaker. You brought up the Torres brothers. We also mentioned Pedro, who had a couple of runs as the WWA champion. I want to briefly ask you about them because they came up on our Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame special. The Torres brothers, or at least Alberto Torres, was on the ballot, and Pedro was on the ballot. And a lot of people look at Pedro, and their argument is he was only a draw in the WWF with that title in front of the Puerto Rican fans in New York. That's it. Other than that, Pedro never did anything. And I want you to talk a little bit about the fact that, like you said, he was a draw in Los Angeles. I mean, he had to be. He was the champion for the most part for about a year. I mean, you you don't get in that position unless you're actually drawing money. I want you to talk about that and also. The Torres brothers, I feel like not enough people know about them. Tell us about them. Well, you know, uh, Enrique and Alberto uh, were a a top draw here. Tag team-wise, they had some terrific matches against Moto and and Blassie when when they were both heels. 
and they were idolized by the Mexican uh, Hispanic community, rather. And that was our thing. Just like on the East Coast, you had the Puerto Rican community, you had the Italian community, yeah. you, you you made Bruno Sammartino your champion, so the Italians would come out, and, and I'm not just focusing on that, but there was that appeal, because one of their own was was a, a champion, or became a champion, or and they had to support them. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. And the same thing out here. Blassie sees Pedro Morales, sees how he works for Vince Sr., and tells Pedro, look, you're wasting your time on the undercards when you could go to Los Angeles and work in main events for, you know, Jill Strongbo and, and Charlie Moto. And Morales, of course, decides that's just what he's going to do and comes out here, uh, starts out, you know, mid-card level, the whole thing. They build him up as, as being... Uh, you know, a fantastic Mexican star. Of course, he was Puerto Rican, but he spoke Spanish. Uh, I didn't find out later there are different dialects of Spanish. You know, Puerto Ricans have their dialect. The Mexicans in certain areas have their dialect, etc., etc. And some people spotted it and knew it. But it didn't matter because he was a Latin. And, you know, a Latin from Manhattan, as they say. And uh, <laughs> he came. he came out here and uh, worked with Blassie, worked uh, against a lot of, of guys, and the local area supported him tremendously. They were drawing packed houses with him, and he had that, he had that fire. He had that spark. He had that, that uh, you know, nobody can beat me, come and get it, and, you know, and uh, it was it was for a while he he was doing tremendous. Now there was an athlete that was tremendous. He he was very he became rather conceited as time went on. But that's what happens sometimes with baby faces. You know they <laughs> you know they think everybody loves them and they love themselves and and it happens that way. But as far as his wrestling ability from here, you know, I mean he he went on to Roy Shire. Okay, he did okay with Roy Shire, but then from Roy Shire he went uh, uh, to Australia and New Zealand and uh, all through that area and drew tremendous business and uh, came back here and, and drew even bigger business when he came back here. In fact, even when Bruno was grumbling that he wanted to give up the belt, Vince Sr. said, the one person I want to give it to is Morales. That's the only person I want to give it to. Hmm. And everybody else was lobbying for Victor Rivera. Believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Victor Rivera got more more votes than Morales. Who would have been voting? Well, at the time, you know, they had the owners of the of the uh, WWF uh, beside Vince. They had Willie Gilsenberg. And so they all wanted Victor Rivera because I had always heard that Monsoon spotted Morales in Hawaii and couldn't believe what he was seeing. That here's a guy he's really over, he's really firing. Well, Monsoon, no, Monsoon had known him, and because they had worked, he had worked in the East Coast. But the improvement of Morales and what he was drawing in Hawaii at the time that that was a key thing for Monsoon to tell Senior, hey, it should be Morales that uh, holds the strap if we take it off of Bruno. On the topic of WWA World Champions, Mark Lewin 
had a pretty long run with the title in 66 into 67. I must admit, I know a lot about Mark Lewin's career. I don't know very much about his run in Los Angeles. What can you tell me, Jeff? Well, you know, Mark had been here several times, uh, but not for long because, you know, Lewin traveled the world. I mean, that's what he wanted to do. He was kind of like the Don Morocco of years ago. And I I remember him coming in here and uh, working uh, as a baby face, which he was tremendous. He, uh, Vince Sr. even said that if he had to pick the best baby face of all time, it would be Mark Lewin. You know, he had such a great run. I mean, they were tag teams on the East Coast, Don Curtis and Mark Lewin. And they drew tremendous uh, houses against the Graham brothers, you know, Eddie and Jerry. You know, it was only a matter of time. Lou Fez had come in here after losing the NWA title. And about two weeks after that, Lewin came in here. And Lewin, as I recall, was a tremendous baby face and everybody loved him. And, you know, they, they played up the idea that he, he's uh, the golden, the Jewish golden boy. And, and uh, on TV, they know. did. I'm always curious about that. You know, me being Jewish myself, I'm always curious about wrestlers that it was actually pointed out on TV that they were Jewish. So on yeah, TV, that didn't happen that, o- that didn't happen that often. We had a guy here, but we did that here. See, we had a guy here by the name of Abe Jacobs. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yeah of course. Okay, well, Abe was played up as the golden Jewish wrestler, you know, and had a great run here. But Mark was such a good-looking guy, you know, and he could, his, his scientific style of, of wrestling. So when he came in, around the same time as close to where Bearcat came in, he was here not that long, and he changed his persona. And uh, in one of his matches, which was against Iron Mike DiBiase, he went crazy. He'd start jumping out of the ring, walking on top of the seats, walking on top of people, and they started to call him a maniac. Dick Lane was the one. Started calling him maniac Mark Lewin. And Mark's whole persona, he'd come on the interviews, and all of a sudden, from this clean-cut, cute... Jewish guy, he was he was a mental case. You know, his eyes would roll back in his head, and he just and he you know he, even if he didn't talk on TV, he'd have foam coming out of his mouth. And Fez, now since he lost the NWA championship, still had the old belt, the original belt, and he came in. Uh, Jules brought him in, and he and they wanted to put the strap onto Mark Lewin, which they did. And this happened, I think, on October twenty eighth, nineteen sixty six. Yeah, he beat Luthes. <laughs> wow. And I'm, I'm just trying to think here. I'm, I'm just trying to think. And he went on to beat uh, Iron Mike uh, DiBiase Sr. He beat Buddy Austin, uh, Bobo Brazil and uh, even worked with Pedro Morales. So I know those matches drew tremendous because I went to those matches and uh, sat in the very back and watched watched this guy work. And as a heel, he was tremendous. And, of course, years later when he went down to uh, Australia and he was the first guy, American wrestler to work on Channel 5 down there, their Australian television, for Jim Barnett, 
uh, he could do no wrong. They were turning away people left and right. And, you know, he did the same thing. And when he went to Florida and he, he changed his persona again to, to uh, the Purple Haze, I believe, uh, and, and worked down there and worked, uh, I think, with Dusty Rhodes or against Dusty Rhodes and, and drew tremendous crowds. So, again, you know, these guys, a lot of them, they, uh, they come here and, okay, maybe they're mid-card workers or whatever, but by the time they leave, if they have the promotion and they have the ability, uh, they go away as named stars. And once again, remember, we didn't have all this uh, uh, media stuff, you know, multimedia stuff, Facebook, all this stuff where people instantly can tell about a match or a person or whatever. We only had the wrestling magazines, and the wrestling magazines, you know, were like three months old before you got the news that there was a uh, Bruno Sammartino uh, Freddie Blassie match. And uh, so uh, times were a lot different, and the media stuff was a lot different. But television was still the key. And these guys would make a name for themselves, and they would, uh, Mark Lewin especially, you know, especially, and you, you never knew if he was really crazy or not. And to this day, you don't know that. He's got different personalities. You know, that's what I understand anyway. And, uh, I mean, he's 80 years old now, but I'm sure he's, uh, and I know he wrote a book, and uh, you should uh, have him on your show uh, because I think you'd find him absolutely fantastic to interview, really. There he is, friend of the show, Jeff Walton, with another fun segment. You'll be hearing more from Jeff in the weeks ahead. But uh, very interesting talking about the WWA, a forgotten territory in so many ways. People know about Los Angeles. I think a lot of people overlook the fact that it was a major world championship. And we'll hear a little bit more about that, actually, when we talk to Fumi Saito about the early days, the relationship between Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki. That'll be coming up in a little bit. But first, Book of the Week. And this week's Book of the Week is Masked Decisions, The Triangular Life of Dick the Destroyer, Dr. X Buyer, From American Athlete to International Icon by Vincent Evans with Dick Buyer. Of course, Dick Buyer is the sensational, intelligent destroyer and Dr. X. This book is his life story, not just wrestling, beyond wrestling. Obviously, he was involved in athletics well before wrestling. That's how he first got known. And his wrestling career, his time as Dr. X, his time as a destroyer, working for the WWA in Los Angeles, going to Japan and becoming an icon there, moving to Japan, becoming a star there. All of that and so much more. A really neat book and one you should check out. Once again, Mass Decisions, The Triangular Life of Dick the Destroyer, Dr. X Buyer from American Athlete to International Icon by Vincent Evans with Dick Buyer. And you can get this by going to tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon. Now, you guys know how it works. By using this link, you do everything the way you would normally do. You don't pay anything extra. You don't do anything different. But we get a little bit of credit and love and support from Amazon. It's a great way to support this show without spending a dollar more than you would normally spend. If you enjoy this show, enjoy that it's not stacked, filled with ads, with bullshit advertisers that you don't like, then consider using tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon for all of your Amazon purchases. Give it to your wife, your girlfriend, your mistress, your lover, whoever it may be. Make sure they have tinyurl.com slash superpod. 
Amazon. There are other shows that have links that they want you to use. Remember Podcast One? Boy, did that go up in flames. They used to beg you to use their links. Well, when it comes down to it, you have to ask yourself, the little tiny shitty shows or the big motherfuckers with all the corporate money behind them? Who should you support? Them or us? I think if you like quality, if you care about your content being good, if you want to fight against banality and insipid content, then the answer is very clear. When it comes down to it, them or us, fuck those guys. Support the super podcast. Support your super podcast. And with that, Howard, it's time for the main event of the evening, and that is a conversation with Fumi Saido. Fumi was fantastic on the Bruno San Martino special. He is the premier Japanese wrestling historian. He's written, I think, like 20 books or something in Japanese about Japanese wrestling history. I wish I could get them Mm. translated. I'd really like to read them. But we're going to talk a little bit about Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki, two icons, two of the biggest stars, not just in wrestling history, but in Japan history. These guys are icons beyond sports in Japan. And we're going to talk about the early days, how they were found by Ricky Dozan and what their relationship was like leading into the formation of both All Japan and New Japan Pro Wrestling. This is a fascinating conversation. Let's go to it right now. Here is Fumi Saito. I am very happy to welcome back to the show a friend of the show and the foremost historian on Japanese wrestling, my friend and yours, Fumi Saito. Fumi, welcome back to the program. How are you? Hello from Tokyo. <laughs> Hello from Tokyo. Hello from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, talk to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the last time you were on the show, it got a tremendous reaction, Fumi. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit more today really? about Japanese wrestling. But before oh, thank we you. do that, I'd love sure. it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your podcast, the Pacific Rim Podcast. Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast. And we had Barbara Goodish last, you know, yesterday. Because this, yeah, of course, uh, to this day, Bruiser Brody is very, very big, huge figure in Japanese wrestling, you know, society or Japanese, not, not just wrestling fans, but still very, very famous up to this date. And coming this July, it will be 30, you know, 30 year anniversary since Bruiser Brody's passing. And, uh, yeah, I thought that uh, it was time for us to get a hold of Barbara Goodish, Mrs. Bruce Brody. And we were fortunate and lucky enough to you know, have her on the show. So please go, go and listen to our show. Do you think any of the Japanese companies are going to do anything special this summer to commemorate the passing of Bruce Brody? Oh, probably will. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine so, yes. Yeah. Yeah, the funny thing is, that uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling and New Japan Pro Wrestling, you know, your Giant Baba's All Japan and Anthony Inoki's New Japan, both companies still exist, but it's not the same company what it used to be. The same, you know, logo, uh, same company name, but it, it's managed and owned by different people now. It's not Inoki's New Japan. It's not Baba's All Japan, but the company still exists. And we're going to talk a little bit about Anoki and Baba in a few minutes. But I, yes, I, yes. I, mm-hmm. I am curious to this idea that Bruiser Brody is still to this day such a big star in Japan. When it comes to the Gaijin, yeah. when it comes to the biggest American stars in Japanese history, you would think of a Bruiser Brody. Of all time, you mean? Well, yeah, you would think of a Bruiser Brody or a Stan Hansen or the Destroyer. But right, in, in right. your eyes, who would you say are the top five 
American wrestlers in Japanese history. In terms of the star magnitude, that would be really hard because yeah, the Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody, the biggest biggest superstar of eighties into nineties. Oh, I'm sorry, but, but, but Bruiser Brody passed away in 1988. But uh, we, we have to, you know, let's put it this way. But in 1970s, you know, you had Dorian Terry, the Funks, Abdul the Butcher, the Tiger Jit Singh, the Mill Maskers, the, you know, all these, all those huge superstars that are just as big as Stan Hansen Brody, yeah, in 1970s. So it's, I, it'll be really hard to compare, you know, say you said that uh, Dick Byer Destroyer, uh, say people like Freddie Blassie, you know, these are, they were the stars. They were so big in, you know, 60s and 70s. So it, it's really hard. You got to, you can't compare Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair to your buddy Rogers to, you know, even go all the way back to people like a gorgeous George. And it's just not fair because time was yeah. different. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. That makes perfect yeah. sense. In, yeah, in 90s, yeah. In, in, of course, Stan Hansen, Bruce Brody, huge, you know, just larger than life superstars, but there were some people after them too. I'd say people like Bam Bam Bigelow, the Terry Gordy, Steve Williams, Vader, or even Scott Norton. There were American stars in Japan, you know, in different time, you know. And uh, yes, of course, Stan Hansen Bruce Brody stick, sticks out. Was anyone a bigger crossover star than the Destroyer? Destroyer. Yeah, but he's a different path too because he Destroyer was huge star in sixties when wrestling was relatively new, and he was the biggest rival of father of Japanese wrestling, Ricky Dozen, and also Dick Byer Destroyer was the very last opponent of Ricky Dozen in nineteen sixty three before Ricky Dozen died. You know that made him special, and also he came back in early seventies. Uh, right after the formation of Jan Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling, they had their single matches and they had they had the program. And there was a stipulation that the, if Dick Bayer, the destroyer, lose to the single match to Jan Baba, he will join All Japan Pro Wrestling as a member of All Japan Pro Wrestling. And Dick Bayer was the very first American wrestler who signed full-time contract with a Japanese company, and he moved his whole family from America, and they actually lived in Tokyo for seven straight years after that. And all three kids, Dick Byers' kids, went to junior high school, high school, and graduated from high school in Japanese school, and they speak fluent Japanese. And they come in back and forth and do business with Japanese company to this day. Different culture, you know, that, uh, so he had this, his place in society that he was so huge. And also Dick Byer was the first one who appeared on those, you know, late night comedy shows. And so di- different, you know, a little bit different. Abdullah the Butcher the same way, that, that he was huge heel, but at the same time, you know, people use him for TV, commercial, soda pop, you know, so, you know just di- different time, yeah. We're talking a different time. Someone who just recently passed yeah. away was Mrs. Baba, the wife of Giant Baba, and I know a lot of my listeners have yes, never mentioned yes. on the show, but may not really know too much Motoko about her. Motoko Baba. Motoko Baba. Yeah. What can you tell us about her Motoko Baba. and her influence over All Japan Pro Wrestling? Influence. Actually, she was the boss. I think that All Japan Pro Wrestling was the most 
successful mom and dad, you know, pop and mom company. You know, in old territory days in America, you know, you go South, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, anywhere, you know, they, they were basically, a lot of those promotion companies were mom and pop company, weren't they? Family running risk. Yeah, you know, you'd see families like, you know, obviously the Welch family, the Fuller family owns. Welch's and the Fuller's, yeah. 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 Or Nick, you know, Gula's, the Jarrett's, the. Right. Or the Von Eric's, the, you know, yeah. So, oh, Von Gagne's, you know. So, uh, once you start naming them, they all come back to you. I guess because the wrestling company used to be more family-oriented in the kayfabe society, and it's a closed society. That it was very hard for a newcomer to come in. Yeah, same thing with Detroit, actually, with the Sheik and his wife. Yeah, yeah. Territories. Dick the Bruisers, yeah. So I would say that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling Company was the, one of the most successful family-run, you know, operated pro wrestling company and he lasted you know until 1999 you know until john baba passed he uh, john baba died in, uh, january of 1999 so he did not see 21st century but uh all through yeah 70s and 80s into 90s yes he, mr and mrs baba was running um all japan pro wrestling very successful pro wrestling major league company and actually day-to-day base, but they did not have children. And Mr. and Mrs. Baba traveled together all, all year long. That the Old Japan was a company who was running, what, uh, 150 to 180 shows a year, traveling, you know, always on the road. And uh, they did the ta- you know, TV taping, different places all through countries. And Mrs. Baba always traveled with him. So he was always there every day. She was always there. In fact, she was always standing in the entrance, you know, where we sign up, you know, sign her name and get the pass and go into the, you know, our reporters and journalists and photographers, yeah. you know, we put down the name and uh, they give you a little stickers or a little press pass and stuff like that. And uh, Mrs. Bravo is always there sitting, checking people. <laughs> and also, um, let me put it this way because uh, it's really easy to understand. Giant, they're both, you know, equally important bosses, okay? But for boys, Giant Baba was a big baby face, and Mrs. Baba purposely took heel roles a lot of times. Good cop, bad cop. Little bit, little bit. And some misunderstanding could, you know, could occur because, all right, let's say some American wrestlers, you know, had dispute and that either got fired or left this territory, right? A lot of the times they were saying, I, I was good with Jan Baba, but the Miss, I couldn't get along with Mrs. Baba. They left it you know, that way. But that's not, wasn't even true. It was always Jan Baba's decision to let certain guy go, right? Get fired. But it was always Mrs. Baba who went over there and told them. She didn't mind being the heel. Does that make sense? She didn't mind being the heel. Oh, no, no. <laughs> and also that protected Baba's image, you know, mighty king you know the emperor you know then a nice person and of course it was baba who was firing guys or telling to a certain deal no you know but it was mrs baba's role to step up and say we decided this and this is our decision and you know either you are fired or this deal is not going through or it was always mrs baba that uh, 
you know, it made it, it made it look like you know, she made the decision, but it was always Giant Baba's decision that you know, you know what I'm saying? Just it was different because Antonio Inoki's in New Japan did not have that, right? You know. Let's go back now. You know, we're talking sure, about Baba. Sure. Let's go back to the beginning because one of the things I'm fascinated with Fumi is the relationship between yeah. Baba and Inoki because it is such a long storied relationship, and of course, after the split. They really don't get together again. Obviously, there's that joint show in 79, but you never get to see the tag team again. It was the, really just only time. Only time. You never get to see them do anything, but they are so interconnected, especially in the early part of their career. So that's what I want to talk to you about. And let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Ricky Dozan. How did Ricky Dozan find them? Okay. Uh, let's put it this way. If it wasn't for Baba and Inoki's this big rivalry and uh, ongoing, you know, battle that Inoki's Baba's war, battle, you know, struggle, were the Japanese history for the past 50 years, Japanese wrestling history. 1960, in spring, April to be exact, 1960, it was announced the very same day, Ricky Dozen introduced Baba and Inoki as their rookie, the same day. April of 1960. Giant Baba was former 20, uh, former Yomiuri Giants pitcher, 22-year-old former baseball player, being introduced as big rookie. And Inoki was introduced from somebody Ricky Dozen discovered in Brazil. He was 17. Ricky Dozen had a tour in Brazil and discovered Inoki, the truck runner, and discussed, you know, a thrower. Um, 17 year old, just natural athlete that they discovered, and they brought him back from Brazil. See that the Inoki's family moved to Brazil. The whole whole family moved when he was 14 to start the uh, coffee farm or something, you know. But he was there for three years. But he was brought back by Ricky Dozen when he was 17 years old. 17 years old. So 22 year old Baba and 17 year old Inoki were introduced to press as they are promising strong two rookies, very same day. That's when it started. In September of the same year, 1960, they started. They've had first wrestling match the same day, September 30th. Well, you know, there's an interesting thing on that show, too, because Giant Baba wins his match, and Inoki loses his match to Kentaro Oki. Right. And that's another guy with a very interesting career in Japan and, of course, a history with Ricky Dozan. What can you tell the listeners about Kentaro Oki? Kentaro Oki is another strong strong rookie that he actually came from from South Korea without visa and got caught and he was in jail, you know. You know, like an illegal you know, immigrant. But uh, somehow, somewhat, uh, Ricky Dozen pulled his political muscle and got him out uh, from that the jail. And then uh, signed, you know, this kid from Korea that, uh, hey, uh, he liked him, you know. And, yeah, of course, it just had a lot to do with Ricky Dozen being Korean descent. Yeah, of course, they had that same background, but... At this period of time, when you have Baba and Anoki as the high-profile students of Ricky Dozen, sure. is Oki in that same league, or yeah. is it a little different? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And also, later on, he went back to South Korea and, and became a father of professional wrestling, much like Ricky Dozen was in Japan. He started there over there. 
but it's the story in South Korea. It would take weeks to talk about it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, he became a founder of pro wrestling in South Korea. But the perception in that country is a little bit different. See, in Japan, wrestling was accepted both as a sport, as in both as an entertainment, and a lot of times, just like in the states, it did not, you know, didn't matter because wrestling was so big that uh, some people still. I wanted to discuss it whether it was real sport or it's a fake or entertainment or something in between or something unique that when you talk about wrestling, but it's wrestling, you know. And uh, Korean people had different perception that, that they wanted to decide either this is total, you know, real competition. Other than that, it's fake. Very black and white. But the Japanese audience were able to enjoy wrestling like going back and forth or somewhere in between. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, this period of time... Does that make any sense at all? It it makes perfect sense. Yeah. This period of time that we're talking about, 1960, what is the layout of the JWA at that period of time? Is Toya Nobori involved in anything behind the scenes, or is he just wrestling? Other than Ricky Dozen, what is the structure of the JWA? Ricky Dozen was the sole king. And everybody else was his protege. Yoshino Sato being protege, Toyo Nobori being his protege, you know, that uh, Michi, even Michi, uh, Michiaki Yoshimura. Uh, Kokichi Endo came from judo background, but it was, he was not equal to Ricky Dozan, you know. And uh, yeah, Ricky Dozan was the only king, yes. Did Inoki and Baba get along at the beginning? That's what I was told, yes, got, got along. Because there's nothing to... At the beginning of Baba's Inoki's career, there was no reason to compete. You know, they started together. They almost looked like they're both tall, long face. You know, a lot of people thought they're brothers even. You know, then there was no reason to really envy or hate each other at that point. But the treatment was different. See, Ricky Dozen treated Baba as a, some very promising future superstar coming from, you know, major, you know, Japanese Major League Baseball, Giants pitcher, turning, you know, to be wrestler. It was a marketable. So Giant Baba was sent to America the following year, 1961, summer of, 19, summer of 1961. He was already in States, whereas Inoki was washing Ricky Dawson's clothes. And Inoki didn't go, you know, yeah, did not have a trip until after he he was dead. First trip Inoki made to the States, you know, to California, you know, uh, was after Rick Dozan was dead, 1965. So he was not sent. Well, let's go back to Ricky Dozan's death in December of 63. How does that change everything? He's in charge. He is the king of Japanese wrestling. He has all these students under him, Inoki and Baba and Kentaro Oki. He has other stars in the company, and he passes away. What happens at that point to JWA? Who takes over? It was saved because network channel, Nippon TV, Channel 4, NTV, we call him. Channel 4 and Mitsubishi Company, the big sponsor of Japan Pro Wrestling, Mitsubishi, you know, you know Mitsubishi cars and all that things? Yeah. You know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mitsubishi 
and Channel 4 both promised not to drop wrestling. They were the one funding the company. So they promised we are not going to erase wrestling from television. And uh, this is already a popular culture. And this is going to stay. And wrestling will last, you know, it's gonna be, wrestling is going to be around. They were promised. So the company wasn't going down. You know, you would think that there was, yeah, Rick Dozan being gone and all those things and that the company would, would go down. And they are afraid. But they ran following January tour and crowds responded well. And TV wasn't go, you know, didn't go away. And so we, you still had weekly network primetime television program wrestling. And Mitsubishi was still funding the whole of the company and it started rolling. So they were able to do so without Ricky Doza. There are four bosses, four bosses. Toyonobori, Kokichi Endo, Yoshino Sato, and Michiaki Yoshimura. Those four cartels took over the company. Four wrestlers, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah. So they took over the company. Well, Fumi, let's fast forward a little bit ahead, though. I'm curious about 66 when Toya Nabori announces that he's leaving JWA and he's forming Tokyo Pro Wrestling and Antonio right. Inoki is right there with him. What led to that? What led to the formation of Tokyo Pro and why did Antonio Inoki leave with Toya Nabori? When he was 23, yeah. Actually, it happened the previous year. That we just talked about right after Ricky Dozen died, there were four bosses, Endo, Yoshimura, um, Yoshino Sato and Toyonobori, right? Four bosses. First one who got kicked out of the four, you know, the team of four was Toyonobori. Well, Toyonobori, if you ask Toyonobori, he would say he left, quit. If you ask those three, they fired you know, Toyonobori. So history could only tell, you know, but both companies went down eventually. But uh, for figure of speech, speech that uh, Toyonobori left, Okay, all, all by himself. And after two years of, you know, traveling and circuiting and, you know, having, America, you know, like experience all by himself in America, Inoki uh, was ready to come back. Okay, 23-year-old Inoki was ready to come back. And they were going to meet all of them at, in, in Hawaii and train together and take pictures and film some of the footage. And he was, Inoki was going to get, you know, to be brought back for the for eighth annual World League tournament. You know that every year they had the spring single series tournament called World League, a championship tournament. You know, Ricky Dozan won the five five years straight, and sixty, uh, I say, uh, sixty four, sixty five, Toronobori won two years in a row. Then Inoki was being brought back for that eighth year of World League tournament. But the Toyonobori was there in Hawaii waiting for Inoki to show up. And he told 23-year-old, very anxious Inoki that don't go back to Japan Pro Wrestling. You'll never be, you know, that you will always be underneath Jan Baba. See, Jan Baba was brought back as a new superstar already by then. If you go back to Japan Pro Wrestling, you will always, always be underneath Jan Baba forever. You like that? And the 23-year-old, you know, Inoki told Turner Boy that, okay, I'm joining you. So that was the beginning of Tokyo Pro Wrestling. 23-year-old, you know, like really, you know, ambitious Inoki, though, you know? 
So at that point in time, uh, there wasn't earlier on in 1960, but here we are five years or so later. Yeah. What was the relationship between Baba and Anoki at that point? Was there any resentment from Anoki that Baba was becoming a bigger star first? It was more of, on, on Inoki than it ever was Baba. You know, Baba didn't really care about, you know, how Inoki felt about things in general because he was way ahead of everybody. You know, he was designed and he was a great athlete. He spoke English. He already had run in America twice. You know, he had two trips to America, you know, leaving Japan in 1961. And he had a 18-month run all over America, Madison Square Garden, or your Detroit Olympia against Barry Rogers. Detroit against Barry Rogers, other places against Lou Fess. You know, he traveled, or even the match against people like Antonino LaRocca or the single match program with Killer Kowalski, all those big name experience Bob already had and came back. And he had this superstar aura, you know. And I'm sure that the Inoki was very jealous. 20, you know, 20, 20 year old Inoki was, I'm going to America and do things and come back as a star, you know. And, uh, yeah, Tonobori kind of knew how Inoki felt that uh, he will join in, you know, so-called outlaw company. You know, they didn't know then. Because the uh, funny thing was, though, Japan Pro Wrestling was saying that the, they were the governing body of professional wrestling. Just a company, though, you know what I'm saying? But uh, they were the sole company, the only company in Japan then. That uh, So they thought they were the governing body of professional wrestling and uh, thought the Tokyo Pro Wrestling was so-called outlaw company. That only lasted like a six months. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you look at Japan yeah. now, you see so many independent... hundred companies. Yeah, so I mean... What was <laughs> Over a hundred. Like, was, yeah. was Tokyo Pro the first opposition company to ever run against JWA? Actually, even during uh, Ricky Dozen's day, there was like a 15 different companies in Japan that the people didn't report. You know, even, okay, you know the big historical wrestling match between Ricky Dozen and Masahiko Kimura, right? Sure, of course, famous. Yeah, and, then Kim, yeah, and Kimura, for today's MMA fan, is like a father of, like a father of MMA and uh, created the move called you know, like a double wrist truck, you know, the, the, uh, the hammerlock. It's a Kimura, right? Yeah. Him. Kimura even ran his own wrestling company. And even in Ricky Dozen's days, there was like a five, six wrestling companies in Japan. But uh, Ricky Dozen was so politically strong that I told the press not to, not to, you know, like uh, give any of those wrestling companies any coverage. And they agreed. So it's like a hidden part of the history that, there were more wrestling companies than Ricky Dozen's JWA and that people didn't know about. Are there any and records actually, of those shows? Do you have any results? Are you able to... Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really slim, too, because it, some of the company was just operated in Osaka. For Kimura's company's case, he, that company was just running shows in Kumamoto, you know, way down south. Or there were records of women, like a three or four women's company in late 50s into 60s. You know, in 1957, Mildred Bark, the great May Young, you know, uh, Rita, Rita, uh, okay, I'm slipping on my, my, my mind, but yeah, yeah, all those, they had their tours in Japan too. They planted the seeds in women's wrestling in Japan. 
and early part of uh, late 50s into 19, early 60s, there were five or six women's wrestling companies that uh, there aren't too many records today. Some historians should dig out and get these, you know, like a find discover records. Yeah, there were there were women's company way before all Japan women's pro wrestling. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. And one of these days, you and I need to do a lot of talking about that. Do a couple segments research. Like Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's yeah. get back to this because Tokyo Pro is such an interesting... move forward. Yeah, forward, move forward. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Tokyo yeah. Pro Wrestling, what happened? Because it did only last a short period of time, despite having a no. Yeah, like a despite six having months. Toyobinori. Yeah, yeah there was yeah, there was no TV, no network TV, or even the local TV. Nothing. It just ran one tour, just one tour, and every night. Pretty much, uh, you know, of the tour, it was Anto- young Antonio Inoki becoming a new superstar, having a single match against Johnny Valentine, which was good. Johnny Valentine's first tour, yeah. And uh, Johnny Valentine putting, you know, of all people, you know, Johnny Valentine putting, in, you know, young Inoki over clean, not so clean, coming out outside the ring. And other people who were on the card uh, show was Johnny Powers. Uh, Inoki would have a long history with too. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah, and uh, yeah, a couple other, yeah, that the American promoter who helped Inoki for Tokyo Pro Wrestling was Kansas Sunny Myers. Really, that's so interesting. Yeah. First of all, you said it helped Inoki. Yeah. I mean, Inoki went there yeah. after he found out about it. Was Inoki one of the people actually in charge of the company? Yeah, it was Tonobori's people's money. 23-year-old Inoki cannot do much, or he didn't have cash to do so, right. you know? But so, yeah, but... Uh, but was he making decisions? Was he making booking decisions? Him himself, yes, yeah. 23 because Toronobori is not as creative. He wanted to run the company, but it was the company he wanted, wanted for, like a little brother Inoki, you know? You can be the main guy, you know, if you didn't go back, you know, that uh, Japan Pro Wrestling, Inoki believed his words, and 20-year-old excited Inoki would run the company. How exciting, you know? Yeah. And uh, he flew self, he flew himself back to America looking for talent. And actually, Sonny Myers and Inoki met years before. When Sunny Myers came for Ricky Dozen's, you know, tours, that uh, Inoki was running around ring as a young boy, you know, and taking care of an American guys and in, in, in having first match or second match, right? Sunny Myers pointed that in Inoki out, I like this little, this young guy. He would be something, you know, he'll be star someday, right? And in the fast forward years a little bit, five, six, five years or so, Inoki comes back. 23-year-old Inoki comes back to the States. Look, you know, I'm starting a company. You know, I need your help. I need more, you know, American, you know, to be sent. And this and this. And Sonny Myers helped him. Probably because Sonny Myers was always in a little, little bit of anti-NWA, wasn't he? Oh, he sued the NWA. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 along the way. Yeah, but he went yeah. back to Kansas in the referee. You yeah. know, they must have, you know, buried the hatchet. But the Japanese wrestling community didn't really know about this, you know, um, establishment. And uh, if you're not a part of NWA, you'd be outlaw. Or see, Tokyo Pro Wrestling, clearly, clearly outlaw company, right? But uh, they wanted to start. 
they even use sumo palace, you know, a little bit over their head. But uh, yeah. and uh, they cre- create Johnny Valentine was brought in as U.S. you know U- United States heavyweight champion. They created the they um, they made the championship belt look just like Chicago's U- U.S. heavyweight belt. You know the U.S. heavyweight belt that the Vern Gagne yeah, or had. you know all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They designed the belt to make it look just like that U.S. belt and had Johnny Valentine wear it and came into Japan as a U.S. heavyweight champion. Then Inoki beat him for the title. Great program, don't you think? It sounds very Inoki to have a guy come in, give him sounds a very... <laughs> then beat him for it. Well, they, they made that with the, the Tor- Torgach too, you know, five years after that too, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you though, what is it yeah. like for Inoki? Because here he is, he is one of the prize students of Ricky Dozen, although treated differently than Giant Baba. I think you could say clearly mm-hmm. number two to Giant Baba. At clearly the, number two. Clearly number yeah, two clearly to Giant number Baba two. at this time. He leaves, he goes with Toya Nabori, starts Tokyo Pro Wrestling, is booking. It yeah. doesn't work out. It takes a mere matter of months for it to fold. Now he has to go back to the right. WA. What's that like? It was company would, you know, um, company that the old company would always take him back. What was very um, more sensitive was that Inoki already had, you know, eight to ten guys that he had to feed. You know, not just, they would not take Toyonobori back. But, uh, so Toyonobori would say, yeah, I'll retire, right? But uh, they want, old company want Inoki back. But you already had Masa Saito, the Russia Kimura, the, you know, couple guys that already started. And uh, old company wanted to, only wanted to take Inoki back. So it was like some of the guys went out of work, you know. And uh, Russia Kimura eventually joined IWE that was started, you know, starting as an independent around the same time. Masa Saito took like six months off and got the visa and went to San Francisco and L.A. Start working in, in America. And some of the guys had to quit, you know. You mentioned IWE. IWE is an independent that actually does survive. Yeah. Lasts for a long time, mm-hmm. although not as successful. Until like 81. Yeah, not as successful as All Japan right. and New Japan, but had a relationship with Vern Gagne and the AWA and had Shozo yep. and Kobayashi for a number of years. How come they survived mm-hmm. so long? How did they last they had, in the 60s? They had, initially, they had TBS Channel 6, you know, who, another network journal who wanted to have wrestling. They backed, you know, they were funding IWE. And that the IWE was a company who was up, you know, who was run by Yoshiwara, who left all, uh, that uh, Japan Pro Wrestling, you know. And, uh, yeah, had a term with a uh, European uh, connection. You know, they discovered Billy Robinson. They brought people like Hurst Hoffman or, yeah. uh, or George Gordienko, the... Oh, they brought back Rick, uh, Carl Gotch at the time. Andre, and, Andre uh, debuted with them, I think. Uh, they, yeah, uh, Monster Rushmoth. They were just yeah, so they, they were a very interesting missing link that discovered a lot of wrestlers. You know, are they forgotten? Billy Robinson was brought in. Are they overlooked? Is I yeah, yeah, because uh, pretty much overlooked. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because it was fall 1981, it's already about the 38 years ago, and today's fans don't remember that. 
you have to be at least late 40s or you have to be 50 years old to even remember that as a kid. But when I was a kid, I'm 56 years old. When I was like in the fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, there were three wrestling every week. Monday night, IWE on channel 12, network channel. Uh, Friday night, Antonio Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling on Friday night on channel 10, TV Asahi. And Saturday night, primetime, 8 o'clock, All Japan Pro Wrestling on Channel 4, NTV. So there were three primetime wrestling commercial, I mean, wrestling shows on regular channel. Three times, three nights a week. That's big, isn't it? That's really big. I got to wonder, when you were a kid, how big of a deal was it when Strong Kobayashi went against Anoki? Oh, I've got two different world heavyweight champions. Yeah. Listen, everybody was a world. He- I'm sorry, everybody was a world heavyweight champion. But <laughs> IWA, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah but yeah. IWA, IWA world heavyweight champion Strong Kobayashi quit the company and challenged NWF National Wrestling Federation. Well, Joey NWF Thomas. world heavyweight champion. Yeah, but the, the, he, we got to get to that. But the, yeah. he, Inoki, beat Johnny Powers and actually brought the belt, and the belt became Japanese championship belt. And uh, two different, at the time, Pacific Wrestling Federation, PWF World Heavyweight Champion was Baba, okay? So they were, each channel had your champion, you know? And uh, so jumping from IWA, strong Kobayashi, their champion, challenging Inoki was such a big deal. Such a big deal. And also, it was the way Inoki fought Old Japan because there was a Japanese against Japanese, like a real hot ticket, right? And All Japan did Japanese versus Americans. Yeah, because all the, the big name, Bruno San Martino, the Gene Kaniski, the Funks, the Abdul the Butcher, the Dick Byer in the Japanese side. You have Mil Maskus, all the superstars from America working for all Japan. So that's like a different different kind of wrestling, you know. Friday night, you watch Inoki's show. Inoki beat everybody, you know. It was somewhat no-name American, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, or against Japanese heel. Whereas Jan uh, Baba always had this gorgeous come right from America, the, the people you read in magazines, you know, all the supers from America, every tour. So I, I watched both, of course, as a kid. And always wondered, you know, that uh, I wish all those American superstars would come to Inoki's show and have all the dream matches come true. But the Inoki, uh, yeah, Inoki did not have many superstar Americans. He had what you said, Johnny Powers, and there were Taiga Jit Singh, or the real fat Magaya brothers, or Killer Carl Krupp, or somebody like that, you know? Yeah. And you know, it could be everybody. It was really until the relationship with Vince McMahon Sr., he wasn't getting prime um, American yeah, talent. Until then, yeah. yeah. Then people start showing up, yeah. After 1974 uh, or so. But we still had the, not quite Bruno San Martino. Vince McMahon Sr. would send people who are under the giant, of course. Um, but... Uh, who, who, who's next? Uh, Pedro Morales, Victor Rivera. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let me go back to the big, you know, at least the first match, 74, Anoki versus Strong Kobayashi, who leaves the IWE. Oh, huge. Let me ask yeah. you this, though. When Anoki beats him, even though he quit yeah. and he's not in the IWE or IWA, I know it's called both things. Anymore. Yeah. Even though he's not yeah. there yeah. anymore. Yeah, company's, yeah, company's IWE, and the championship belt is IWA. When Anoki defeats Strong Kobayashi, does it hurt the IWA yeah. even though he's not there anymore because he was the former champion? 
Oh, back of even the kids like myself back then, IWE was clearly number three. You know, clearly it was always clearly number three. Yeah, because strong Kobayashi's yeah strong champion in one channel, but the back of your you know in back in mind is the, you always believed that Baba and Inoki those are the two big deal things because they were the tag team first. You know. Up until 70, 71. Well, let's talk about that yeah. right there because we talked about Tokyo Pro Wrestling and Noki returns to the JWA Inoki, after Tokyo right, Pro. Right, and they, were, they had to be treated like a two new stars. Two new stars. Giant Bob is a star. Inoki is also a star. And there was an international heavyweight champion, single champion, the top title he inherited from Ricky Dozen. International heavyweight title sanctioned by NWA, right? Uh, sounded like a big champion, right? That's Baba. And he pretty much beat every single American superstar who come to Japan. The funny thing, like 1967, then WWF champion Bruno Sammartino come in and do the tour, right? He does not, Bruno does not defend his title in Japan. He is a challenger to Baba's International Heavyweight Champion and that's 60-minute Broadway. And Inoki, uh, I mean, uh, Giant Baba successfully defended his title against Bruno San Martino. Same year, 1967, Gene Konitsky come in as an NWA World Heavyweight Champion. He does not defend that title. He challenges International Heavyweight Champion Giant Baba and does 60-minute Broadway in Osaka Baseball Stadium. 60-minute Broadway, sure enough, the Baba defense title. So they were pulling those San Martino, Kuniski, Giant Baba all in, like, in the same level. You know what I'm saying? At the time, Inoki did not have singles title. Baba and Inoki were international tag team champions going against people like Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher or, or Danny Hodge and Wilbur Snyder or, you know, you have this or Bobo Brazil and Kaniski together or all those big names, big names, you know, and they were always two out of three, four matches in, in the 60s into 70s and the second four, Inoki takes four bad huh <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh, Baba yeah Baba beat him for the third fall or something there was a, there was a formula that uh, I learned as a kid you know but while this tag team you know match is taking place as I remember as a little kid Inoki was working 70% of the match in there Inoki was in there 70 80% of the time taking heat and also making comeback and Baba only does a hot tag and come in and he does his move and wins. So kids, like including myself, always thought, you know what? I think Inoki actually is better than Baba. So it was like a, Inoki was putting seed <laughs> into people's head that uh, Inoki is actually better in ring than, than, than Baba ever was. And uh, if, you, if you were fed that kind of match, Years, I mean, week after week, month after month, and year after year, you start believing Inoki actually is better in the ring than Baba, isn't he? And that's how he was, you know. But uh, as as a structure, Baba was placed above Inoki. Then 1971, Inoki was made singles champion in L.A., beating John Talos 
UN, the, the beginning of UN, United National Heavyweight Championship. So there are all of a sudden two, two singles champions, International Heavyweight Champion Baba and UN Heavyweight Champion Inoki, beating people like young Jack Briscoe or young Dick Murdoch, getting old Freddie Blassie, or even the title defense against people like Fritz von Erich, successful, you know. And uh, 1969, TV Asahi started airing Japan Pro Wrestling on Monday night. You know, so for about three three year period or so, that uh, there were two different TV shows out of Japan Pro Wrestling when Inoki and Baba were still together. But Baba only appears on Channel Four. Same crew, but the main guy on Channel Ten was Inoki. Then eventually that became New Japan and All Japan. That's crazy. <laughs> Just the way yeah. that it Yeah, because one company having two network different shows on Monday night and on Friday night. And one shows Inoki show and one shows Baba show. Of course it was split eventually. But uh, at the time, you have to remember, see, uh, people who was running new, uh, Japan Pro Wrestling Company, like Yoshino Sato and Endo, they weren't the brightest guys. They thought the money was going to, come, you know, going to come in forever for them. It wasn't for them. It was for the company. But uh, that's why Inoki wanted to revolutionize that structure of the company and wanted to kick these old farts out, you know? Was Mitsubishi We're gonna run the company. sponsoring the program? Um, okay, there was, a, there was an incident that uh, Channel 10 started putting Baba on the Channel 10's program, and Channel 4 got so angry that Channel 4, Nippon TV, NTV thought, on, on paper too, that they were exclusive with Jan Baba. Channel 10, whatever they do, cannot have Jan Baba on their show. But Yoshino Sato went ahead and put Baba's in there. And then uh, there was a court case, of course, that uh, Channel 4 uh, NTV sued Channel 10, and Japan Pro Wrestling, you know, violation of t- term, right? And uh, Yoshino Sato wasn't bright enough to think, uh-oh, do you have problem? You know, because they, old farts thought they had them, you know, network TV money coming forever, right? And they were spending money like, you know, like water. So, uh, Inoki wanted to change structure, and Baba wasn't happy about this thing, and uh, he felt loyal to Channel, in Channel 4. And Channel 4, top executive came directly to Baba, leave that stupid company and form your own company, Wobakia. That's the beginning of All Japan. I mean, that's and the end of the... <laughs> if you got TV, that's all you yeah, I guess so. Imagine if the TV company... Could and and, and the Mitsubishi, too. Unbelievable. Yeah. What was it, though? What was the final straw? Because, again, Anoki and Baba have been associated with this company since the beginning of their career. Obviously, Ricky Dozan's long gone. Some of the owners are gone. Yeah. What was the final breaking point that led them both within the same? Well, you have to remember that uh, by doing that, uh, Inoki trying to change the structure of the company and and, then did pretty pretty drastic things uh, that uh, Inoki was fired. Inoki was fired again in December of 71, December of 71. Inoki was fired from Japan Pro Wrestling. And that's when he created New Japan Pro Wrestling in January of 1972 without TV. 
See, there was a one-year period during 1972 that Inoki did not have any TV, that he tried to run his own show with Korogach and his guys without TV. And during 1972, Japan Pro Wrestling still had TV Asahi deal for one year with top talent, Kintaro Oki and young Sakaguchi and some American guys. You had great Kojika, you know, the, the Takachiho before he was great Kabuki, yeah. uh, Umanosuke, Ueda, those, you know, semi-stars then and still had TV deal, but it was like that, that uh, your viewership and uh, ratings or nose diving without Inoki, without Baba, right? There was nose diving. Sakaguchi start have, started having meeting with Inoki just by himself in somewhere in downtown Roppongi that, you know, those two met. Sakaguchi said, this company, you know, this old company is going down. And uh, Sakaguchi and his guys, like Akira Khan and Kengo Kimura and them guys, Sakaguchi will join you. And uh, Inoki and Sakaguchi was going to form another new company. And uh, Sakaguchi was going to bring TV Asahi deal with him. So Inoki will have TV finally. And spring, April of 1973, formerly, officially, Sakaguchi and Inoki joined together as new New Japan Pro Wrestling, and they had TV Asahi exclusive contract, April of 1973. Therefore, Inoki and Baba both had network television. Once Inoki and Baba have... Make any sense? Yeah, once Inoki and Baba have the TV deals, what happens to JWA? Yeah, who network the- TV. Yeah, but what happens to JWA? They lose all their top talent and they lose their TV. What are they? They went down. They went out. They went out of business May of 1974. So yeah, they survived quickly. another. They survived over another year without their two biggest stars and their. Team. No, actually, uh, about a year. But uh, they went um, one month after Sakaguchi left and lost the TV. See, TV Asahi switched its affiliate from. Japan Pro Wrestling to Inoki Sakaguchi's New Japan Pro Wrestling as of April of 1973. So they had TV, uh, the old company had TV Asahi deal previous year, but it was Sakaguchi and Oki and rating and viewership or nose diving. They wanted to do something about it, bring Inoki back, all those things. But the Inoki didn't want to join the old company. Sakaguchi didn't want to have anything, anything to do his old farts. Sakaguchi and his guys. Inoki and his guys joined up and created new New Japan Pro Wrestling. And, and, and uh, they said goodbye to all the generation of wrestlers and bookers and companies. So, 74 on, yeah, two huge companies. Inoki's in New Japan and Baba's Old Japan competed. By the time they both start up in 72 after leaving JWA after a few years as a tag team. Yeah. What was their relationship at yeah. that point? At the formation of All Japan and New Japan, what was the relationship between Baba and Anoki? Was there one? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that the, uh, by then, Inoki was looking at Baba as the biggest enemy of his life. Wow. Yeah, Baba probably, yeah, Baba was almost always, always a receiving end of it. You know what I'm saying? Baba never openly talked about their rivalries that much, you know, because he was, you know, Baba was a star before Inoki ever was, and he was already an established name. He had TV deal before Inoki did, 
So he was running before, like a far ahead of Inoki. Inoki was always in, is like a chasing Baba's status. And still clearly number two for another couple of years until Inoki had a match against Muhammad Ali. How's that? That's the one that changed it, though, for New Japan. It was up until the Ali fight that New Japan was clearly... Equal, equal, yeah. Both famous, both famous and equally popular. And the two different wrestling shows they're providing. So they were like, a, you know, if it was baseball, you say American League and, and National League, right? You know, you can always have two different leagues and people watch both. But uh, for general audience perception, Inoki getting so popular and also having this strange, but, you know, like a dream come true type of like a strange MMA, the birth of MMA, you know, for some people, the Muhammad Ali fought, you know, fight actually took place. It's the craziest thing ever, right? There it is, Fumi Saido, a great friend of the show. You'll be hearing more of him in the weeks ahead. And I once again want to mention he has the Pacific Rim podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Check that out. Fumi is a great guy, like I said. Friend of the show, and we look forward to having him back on the show in the future. Howard, as we wrap things up, you, as always, killed it in the co-host chair. You are so much fun to have on the show. We love having you here. What would you like to plug as we wrap the show up? Oh, go on. All right, so I'm on Twitter, guys. I just signed up to the Twitter, Howard M. Baum. The M is for Mark, both uh, figuratively and literally. I hope you come and visit me there. And uh, whatever it is that you do on Twitter, I'm more than happy to give it to you and keep the Super Podcast universe happy. You can also check out my astounding, amazing wrestling photos under my auspices, free to gawk at, at www.facebook.com slash Hardway Art, H-A-R-D-W-A-Y-A-R-T. Why are you spelling out the whole address, Grandpa? www. <laughs> Why don't you add the H-T-T-P also? I, uh, <laughs> slash, slash, you're right. I left that out. Exactly, semicolon. I know, you caught me. All right. <laughs> anyway, Hardway Art, either on Facebook or IRL, you know, we have a real website, Hardway Art, so I'd appreciate it if you guys follow me, join me, check me out, and check out my excellent wrestling photos that I am happy for you to see. And Brian, may I say, this is like my one-year anniversary so, since you have plucked me out of the nether regions. I've really enjoyed this, and uh, I appreciate being a part of the 605 Podcaster universe. And for all you guys out there that happen to enjoy me, I really appreciate it. And the ones that don't, hope you can bear with it. There's other people to check out. I enjoy Scott Cornish myself. And guys, I really appreciate it, Brian. Well, I'm very happy to get you away from the nether regions. I think there's a lot of people very happy I got you away from the <laughs> nether regions. But no, it's, uh, what I'm trying to say. it's always a joy to have you here. I really appreciate you saying all that. And uh, we love having you here. We look forward to everything we're going to be doing in the future. And I also want to say on the topic of the future, Howard, I know not too far from now, you'll be back on the show with some announcements. You got some pretty cool things coming up, and I know you don't want to really let too many people know about it, but let's just say you could listen in the future here to the show. Howard's got some cool things that some of the listeners may want to check out, if I may say so. I know I didn't clear that with you. Totally, totally. I appreciate it. 
As you guys know, with the show here, a few news and notes. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at 605pod. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. And you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at SuperPodcast. You can follow the 605 Super Podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash super podcast it is the central online hub for everything social media wise with the super podcast you get to see the travis heckle artwork each and every week which is always brilliant travis is such a big big part of this show and we really appreciate everything he does for the show you get to vote on the top 10 you get to comment about previous episodes you get to communicate with other listeners including some of the co-hosts on the show you get to see pictures videos and so much more facebook.com slash super podcast if you're ever wondering hey what's on the next show if there's an update to be posted that's where it is facebook.com slash super podcast we mentioned it earlier if you like this show and you want to support it without doing anything differently than you would normally do when making your online purchases when you go to amazon use tinyurl.com slash superpod amazon that is our referral link by using that link we get a little bit of credit for every purchase you make for every item you put in your cart after clicking that link it's a great way to help this show out without doing anything differently than you would normally do tinyurl.com slash superpod amazon other shows have links they want you to use but when you got to pick who you're going to support, remember, fuck those guys. Support the Super Podcast. Of course, you could also get Super Podcast merchandise at tinyurl.com slash store. We have t-shirts. I got to thank everyone. We just had the biggest month in show history in terms of merchandise sales, and it's very humbling, and I'm very, very grateful for it. So thank you to everyone. The Mothership Baseball shirts have been very popular. I think it's the best thing we've ever done. Of course, there's also regular Mothership t-shirts. Shirts, the 605 Super Podcast logo T-shirt. We still have some Yo Mamba 605 shirts in stock. We also have 605 Polo shirts, sticker sets, magnet sets, and so much more. If you buy something from us, I may throw in some bonus stuff. People have been reporting there may be some stuff in their packages. Once again, tinyurl.com/superpod store. None of those things in the packages are contraband. Let me just clear that up also, by the way, as we get going here. Of course, if you appreciate what we're doing on this show and you listen to other podcasts and you think, boy, these other shows have these really shitty ads all over. What the fuck? Hey, we agree with you. We try not to do that with Arcadian Vanguard shows. If you appreciate that, consider making a donation to the show. You can make a one-time donation by going to paypal.me slash super podcast or you can make a regular ongoing monthly donation by going to patreon.com slash super podcast lots of other shows have patreon accounts where you pay and you get it to a different tier and you get bonus content that isn't the way we do it here it's not about getting bonus content it's just about supporting the show and once again if you want to do that patreon.com slash super podcast of course the show is on itunes and if you are someone who has subscribed on itunes please consider leaving us a positive review and giving us a five-star rating it really helps the show out and if you could like some of the other reviews that are up there that are positive that would help the show out as well if you don't like itunes for some reason if you hate apple shareholders like myself you can of course go directly to 605pod.com to download the show or access the RSS feed. For everyone that always says, oh, I want to hear the early shows, but they're not on iTunes, you can access them by either stream or download at 605pod.com. I want to remind everyone other fine shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Kentucky Fried Wrestling with Scott Bowden at kfrpod.com, Ron Fuller's Studcast at fullerpod.com, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, 
at baldrinpod.com. And of course, the brand new Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin at mcadampod.com. All shows available iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you find your favorite podcast. The top 10 was brought to you this week by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records. Don't forget ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com. Enter the promo code 605 at checkout and save 20% on all purchases. Hey, the Ruin Brothers are in stock at ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com. So go over there. If there's anything you'd like to send into the show, you could do so by sending it to the 605 Super Podcast. P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Baby, baby. I'm sorry that happened. Is that for true? I don't want to see you around here anymore. It's not my dad! What are you trying to prove? Your mamba! No! I... Numero uno, numero uno. Yo, 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 what's up, what's up, what's up? Let's spend the night together. What's the stipulation? I don't want to see you around here anymore. It's me! P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Howard Baum, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Hey up guys, my name's James Romero and I'm the host of the brand new podcast entitled The Non-Fans Guide to Wrestling. We'll be debuting with a new show every Wednesday right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcasting Network. So what's the premise of the show you may well ask? Well I'm joined by fellow Laps fan Phil and never was a fan Christian where we confine ourselves to a hot studio where we will react to the best, the worst, the funniest and the most ridiculous segments, promos and matches that professional wrestling has produced over the decades for the very first time. That's the official line, but really, it's as much an excuse for us to get together and laugh our heads off as it is a podcast, with the secondary goal of providing an outsider's perspective of the often insular world of professional wrestling. A new show drops every Wednesday, available at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and our dedicated site, nonfanpod.com. Cheers, everyone, and we'll see you this Wednesday. Hi, everyone. This is John McAdam, and I am starting a podcast right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network with my good friend, Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you? Fantastic. We're here to tell you why wrestling was better before you were born. There you go. We are starting the Stick to Wrestling Podcast, which is going to come out every Friday on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This podcast is going to be available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and on the new McAdampod.com. That's M-C-A-D-A-M-P-O-D.com. You can download or listen to the show from those places. The first show is going to drop on Friday, June 15th. And once again, we're going to start your weekend right with Classic Wrestling every Friday. Thank you for tuning in. We're looking forward to it. The priests in the temple didn't wear shoes. And remember, when God appeared to Moshe, <laughs> and remember when and remember when God appeared to Moshe 
at the burning bush. Most. Mosh. Where'd you get that? How'd you go from Moshe to Mosh and <laughs> still avoid the correct pronunciation? Give me the correct pronunciation. How about Moshe? I always fucked it. Hold on. I, th- I don't think I've ever said that before. Moshe. That doesn't sound right either. Maybe it's Moesha. 